0: I hate when, I actually hate when people go like, oh, it's just a lifestyle. Cause it's not, it's a business and it's a critical business. In my opinion, like I say all the time, like food security is national security.
1: So, uh, we're kind of neighbors, uh, people, it's kind of funny people in other parts of the country are like, oh, I have a friend in Montana. They're they're They got to be close to you. And it's like, yeah, well, you can drive nine hours and still be in this state. So it's funny we're we're we've both been in Montana, but we've never actually met before. Where, where's your ranch at?
0: Our ranch is just north of Martinsdale, Montana, uh, kind of between White Sulphur Springs and Harlowton, or probably better known uh, smaller towns.
1: Yep, Har- Harlowtown. So my uh, my mom's I think great grandfather uh, like homesteaded uh, two dot.
0: Oh, get out of here! So we're right. Just just west of two dot. Just most people don't know two dots so I don't usually <laughs> yeah. use it as the reference point. But yeah, we're right, right uh just down the road to the west.
1: Really? Yep. Yeah. Uh no, we my my wife's uh or my mom's uh I think I think they built, I think my great grandfather built the two dot bar. Is that right? Yeah, because my mom as a little kid lived in the top of it. Um, I think for a short time. Which
0: great classic, you know. Yeah. Like the fun part about those places is um you know, there's a lot of bars now that are like trying to be, you know, kind of divy or whatnot. And right. Like, not that those are divy, but they're just, your like classic central yeah. Montana,
1: old school, old school
0: bars where, you know, people buy you drink chips and you see all the same people and yeah. you go in there and you, you honestly, like you, you see people you haven't seen in a while. And it's like great catchups, great visits. And yeah. we know a lot of people that live uh, in that two dot area. And it's just, it's like amazing. Um, just great you know, cattle raising ranch country with yep. these like awesome small towns um, that pretty much all have some sort of classic watering hole that is yep. always a good time.
1: I have a, I have a cool photo in my old shop uh, next door here that it's my, uh, it'd be, I think my great grandfather uh, with my grandfather standing uh, next to him. And he's probably six years old at the time, my grandpa. And uh, they had a, a butcher shop, there, meat shop. And in, in two dot and my great grandfather standing there with my grandfather is this little kid and there's a knife laying on the butcher block right there. And I have that knife in my shop. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, you know, it's over a hundred years old. It's yeah. pretty cool. Huh? Um, you can tell that thing's been, you know, cut a lot of meat I back in the say, day. But yeah. Yeah. I always, if I could have the gift of anything, the gift of time travel would be to go back like in those days when they're settling a place like two dot the middle of nowhere um you know the settlers the 49ers the, the the gold miners in alaska you know you know time travel of all different periods would be unbelievable to see how like how tough those people were
0: yeah i mean there's um i want to say my number might not be exact but there was 54 homesteads up the, the county road that the ranch is on And there's still obviously like remnants of all those places. The the old post office is on the ranch. The uh, school that serviced that area was on the ranch. And you see where those people built and set up. And it's so much different than where people build houses now, where all of those, you know, these, and those winners there are really tough. Uh, It's just tough country. And to build and homestead those things out from nothing and you just see all these really cool homesteads that are, like, down in these bottoms and super well-protected. And then, you know, you drive around and you see these new houses on top of the... All right of, on no, top of the yeah, hill. Yeah. And they just get wind blasted. And, and, you know, you can just see... It's really interesting to go look at in those buildings and just, you know, how well-constructed they were and just to see that history. But I'm with you. Like, if you could go back and see what that looks like because you look at all the... Thank you so much.
1: I lost my coffee, Mac. Can you... Would you... I don't know if it's on that... Uh, yeah, Mac just brought Greg some coffee. Is it on that table over there? Sorry.
0: Oh no, you're good. Um, yeah, um,
1: yeah, yeah. It, the the there, there was actually one that I happened across. I have some cool photos. Um, I should give them to Henry to put over the top of this. But when I was out hunting in the breaks, I happened along a uh, um, an old homestead that's right down, kind of it's up from the river just a little bit out in the Missouri River breaks there, and uh, it was dug into a hillside. And it's like one small room, uh, smaller than this part of the room that we're in right here. And then there's kind of a doorway that goes back, and the back part's dug into the ground. And that's, you could tell that's where, like, their cellar was, where they kept their food and whatnot. Um, you know, and y- you can tell why, the, and same thing, like you say, built down in a little coulee, protected up against the hill. because like spray foam wasn't a thing. Spray foam insulation and, you know, the protection, uh, and also not being you know, super, super exposed. You could ride by that place on a horse and never see it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether they were worried about, you know, Indians or anyone else coming along or whatnot. Um, you know, they were able to be pretty hidden. Uh, but you see all the hand, like handmade nails and all the hand hewn logs, the way they put that stuff together. And the tin was all like on the roof was all like bent around the, uh, like what would be the fascia, Mm -hmm. you know, and you could tell they were catching rainwater for fresh water. Um, and all I can think is like, they probably raised a family in that teeny tiny little cabin. Um, there was an old, uh, like wood cook stove in it. Um, every low, super low ceilings, you know, um, You know, if you were six feet tall, you were too tall for that
0: building. Yeah, for me, it works out good being short when you walk in there. (laughs) But You know, it's funny when you, like you said, you go in there and you walk through these buildings and you can really see, you can almost feel kind of what that must have been like or why they built what they did. And it was only in the necessities too. So you would have, you know, there's these needle barns, but all that wood, you can tell that those guys, you know, hand cut, hand everything. and Yeah, to go two
1: feet taller would have been a ton more work, a ton more lumber. Probably would have been another month of work.
0: Yep. More space to heat, you know. And, and where just...
1: I was at, there wasn't a bunch of timber around it. Like yep. they, they, had to have brought that, that wood in from qu- quite a ways away. I mean, it's really kind of scrubby or brush. Uh, y- you know, there wasn't good good wood to just cut, sure. and build a cabin out of right yep. close. Um, and then you think about the materials like the tin, like that all had to have come in on a on a barge, mm-hmm. on a boat somehow on the Missouri. You know, or they would have had to haul it by wagon from probably from like Great Falls or Billings um, back in those days. I mean, again, out in the middle of freaking nowhere. And I mean,
0: you think about all the just the creature comforts we have today with being out in the elements. And then you think about what those people had at the time. And just I mean, there's times where you're out there with the best gear, the best gloves, and it's you're still cold. Yeah. And what those people did and just the perseverance and the grit that they had to go into those places and homestead them. It's just, it's, it's still every day when I, when you see the remnants of those places, it is just this like really stark reminder of what it took to put those places together um, at that time. And, and it's really interesting too when you see these places that have been running since that time yeah um, and just the sustainability of those, those ranches and those businesses and those families, um, and just what a neat history to to go back in, you know, for you to go back that far in these really, in my opinion, like super unique places that um, you just don't find that sort of history right. um, like you do mm-hmm. with that stuff. And it's just, it's really neat. Imagine,
1: uh, imagine, like I look at like Lewis and Clark. Imagine if you came to your wife and you were like, hey, I was just over in French town. I talked to Josh, Josh and Trevor and me and, and four buddies. Uh, we're going to row up this river uh, in Alberta and we think it goes all the way to the Arctic ocean, we're going to row up it and I'll be back in three or four years. We're going to go map it like, and we're going to row upstream through Indian country, grizzly bear country, whatever the unknown is at that time, like for them to row all the way up the Mississippi, the Missouri upstream. Yep. Like, up river they're rowing and and through hostile territory and and not knowing what they're going to find and to do that for three or four years and then they get done and a guy like john Coulter, when they're coming back when they're going back to st louis goes uh i'm gonna i'm gonna stay out here and do some more exploring i'm gonna stay out here on my horse you know and yeah you know he finds uh you know Coulter's hell which ended up being yellowstone park um you know and and like you said imagine being out in the elements, those trappers, guys like John Coulter, out on a horse in the winter, uh, you know, wearing furs or whatever. And, you know, we watch the show alone. And basically, even the people that do the very, very best that win it are starving to death when they win. Sure. Like, they're all they're all in some form of a starvation. And it's basically who starves last. And they
0: have sleeping bags and stuff, right? I've watched the show a couple times. 100%. No, Yeah. yeah. So you imagine these guys in leather.
1: No, they're wearing sick gear. They're yeah. wearing... Uh, high quality boots, rain gear. Um, they've they've come prepared. Yep. Uh, for the most part, they bring you know they've got a bow and in some some tools, which I'm sure those guys obviously they start off with some of that. Sure. But not you know they're not wearing Gore Tex. No. And you can just
0: imagine, <laughs> yeah, just being in that country at that time with that, just how tough you had to be. Honestly, just just physically yeah. tough um
1: no trails no roads I mean maybe some game trails maybe some old Indian trails or something like that but um yeah to just just point your horse off in that direction and and try to fight through whatever downfall you get and you know again bears and and then you know injury if you injure yourself
0: yeah what do you yeah I mean that could be it Um, like what we would consider to be probably a relatively minor injury bust an ankle that would be you know, you break a leg, that could be it. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Even like driving out here today, you know, you just, you look at these different mountains and stuff. And I always point that out to my kids. Like, imagine before anything was here, you were tasked with just getting through that country, how you would even do it. Did you come through Lincoln? Uh, no, I, uh, I, no, I didn't, because I was in Bozeman this morning, oh, okay. and then I drove up just on 90. Came but I've been through Lincoln a bunch.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I grew up there, and, and Lewis and Clark Pass is just out on the edge of Lincoln. there up by Rogers Pass, yep. and that, where they came over the Continental Divide, and I've hunted up there. My buddy has a cabin up there. He, they have a ranch on the other side of the pass. And every time I've hunted up there, I, I, go, I go up to that sign where the Lewis and Clark Trail, where, where the pass is, and, you know, in theory they were coming across it thinking that they were crossing the continental divide and going to see the ocean. And all they saw was the Blackfoot river Valley, the Bob Marshall wilderness, uh, the mission mountains, the cabinet mountains. Um, I mean, you want to talk about deflating like, and I don't know how long, and I actually need to, I've never read like all the journals and all that. I would actually like to dig into the older I get, the more interested I get in like that journey. But you know when they're when they're trying to find the Northwest Passage and they come up over that hill and they think they're going to potentially see an ocean and all they see is this country that we're sitting in now like holy shit that has to be deflating
0: yeah and if you haven't seen those mountains or those areas I mean that is rugged 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 front country yeah rugged. you get I mean the in my opinion the missions are some of the most beautiful mountains you get in the Bob Marshall I mean that is big. Big mountain country and yeah. to come over and think you're going to see the, you know, the blue ocean in the beach and yeah. to see that and nothing in sight, just how potentially deflating, but also the fact that it didn't deflate them. And they said, Hey, we're driving onward until we yep. get to where we're going. Um, But yeah, that would be a,
1: it's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. So where, where did you grow up then?
0: So I was born in Eastern Pennsylvania um, and I grew up there and then i had a cousin that um is they're from alaska but he went to college out here in missoula and so i started coming out when i was uh i guess it would have been my sophomore year oh. in college started coming out here so like early 2000s and then just really loved this area i'd spent um some summers with them in alaska uh and then ultimately was like you know montana's pretty great i'd done alaska for um Yeah, I was just doing this when I was in college. And then I came out here. I had worked in the outdoor industry and did some guiding and fishing and stuff in Alaska. And then got a little bit of experience and then started doing that here um, in the summers. And then when I graduated college, I started doing that full time. Um, That would have been like 2000, uh, I guess, five um, is when we moved out here full time.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you went to high school all through, through, uh, in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and then, and then moved out. Uh, what were you, where did you go to college?
0: I went to West Virginia university. Okay. Yep. And so then, like I said, like in the summers, I was kind of just going and working at places and um, I was just doing this like outdoor guiding thing just kind of as a, cause I like doing it. What was your degree? Uh, I got a degree in like international business Okay. Uh, from there. So just kind of a basic business degree. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so uh, were you Doing fishing guiding, or what were you doing up in Alaska? Yeah, I was
0: doing fishing stuff. So we did, like, some um, more, like, charter boat stuff and then a bunch of fly fishing guiding type stuff. And then I kind of took the – the nice thing with Alaska is if you don't have experience guiding, it's a great place because they'll kind of hire – or they used to. I don't know how it is anymore. But they used to hire guys because they needed people. And so it was a great place to get started. And then I felt like I got, you know, some time under my belt where – you know, I could come out here and started working for a bunch of outfitters here. Um,
1: Were you uh, here in Western Montana? Yeah, or? I was in Missoula. Oh, and really? Northern Idaho. Yep. Okay. Yep. So guiding down on the Bitterroot. Yeah, Bitter, I, and... Yeah, it's
0: fun driving around here, like Blackfoot, Bitterroot, um, Rock Creek, uh, Clark Fork, all that stuff. Um, yeah. I pretty much, you know, the fishing access here, I have <laughs> put in at a lot of times. Um, so it's fun to come back and uh, see all those those places. And yeah. Missoula, obviously. Um you know, it was just a great place to do that. There's just, there's so much water here and I was fortunate. I got the works for some like awesome outfitters here. And yeah, um, th- we used to do like multi, you know, day and backcountry things um, on the Smith and a whole bunch of different places. And so it was awesome. It was super, yeah. And I just loved doing it. So the day I graduated, um, my wife and I weren't married at the time, but we moved out um, basically as, as soon as we could.
1: Right. So international business degree to become a fisherman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was really, uh, made, made a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Good use to the degree, you know?
1: <laughs> so what did you do after you were, I mean, how long did you guide? What, I, when would you do after you were guiding?
0: Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years and I didn't really have like a, um, like a superset plan. I never really have, I guess. Uh, but i really enjoyed doing that. It was going really well. And, and, um, more than anything, I was, I was enjoying it. I, Um, ultimately I ended up joining the Navy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, that had been something that I'd always, you know, wanted to do. And, you know, probably because of how well and how much I was enjoying, um, doing the guiding thing, I probably, you know, I said, I'll probably do that for a year. Ended up being a couple years. And then I finally got to the point where, um, you know, I, I really was like, Hey, I'm either going to do this military thing, um, get to, you know or not. Right. And I was getting kind of up there and it doesn't sound old um now, but at the time you start getting into your mid 20s and you know that that uh just the opportunity to do that and you know at the time there was a lot going on just internationally um from a military perspective, I had a bunch of buddies that you know had mm-hmm. had joined and um you know Why would you choose the Navy? My uncle had been a SEAL. Um uh, okay. my uncle um who lives in Alaska and I'd spent a lot of time with them and what actually ended up happening was he took me to his just like high schools and colleges have reunions, the SEAL teams do as well. Yeah. And so I was eighteen and he took me to one of his SEAL team, you know, buzz class reunions in Virginia Beach. And I remember going to that and, you know, they do all the You know, they've got guys shooting and jumping out of planes and coming out of the water and snipers and all these things. Sounds all boring. So boring, right? And I remember sitting there, and then we're going to these barbecues and stuff afterwards with these guys. And I was like 18 years old, right? So I'm looking at these guys like- Drinking and having fun. Yeah, and I'm going like, holy shit. Like, I am a a lad. I am a boy. (laughs) These are, you know, these were, you know, there was... And I just remember going, it really planted the seed deep just... You Know just seeing what that, um, having a, I guess like a, a, a introduction to that community, but not, um, I guess like more of like kind of your external introduction, like to really be able to sit there and just hear what these guys were talking about and seeing what they were doing. And, um, it was something that really just resonated with me. And I always like, I grew up just doing outside stuff and shooting and you know, pretty much outside all the time. Um and so at, were,
1: at that age you were what was that like, I was 18 oh, oh one, oh two? Yeah
0: yeah it was 2000
1: um so right before 911
0: Yeah yeah it was right before 911 because that yeah I was I graduated high school in 2000 and okay. so um it was that summer basically that I just graduated high school so yeah pre 911 um and it, it just for me, like, um, those skill sets have probably been the things that have come easier to me mm-hmm. than school type skill sets. And, you know, so I, there was probably part of me that was like, well, here's like an area that I'm might find success, you know, right. as a, as a career or whatever. Um, you know, and then, you know, just, and I think at the time it was definitely probably the right, um, you know, way to go, but, but, you know, my folks really wanted me to go to college and I went down that road and then nine 11 happened. And, you know, I had a lot of time where I thought like, I might just stop doing this college thing and just go do the military now. Right. Um, and I think, you know, looking back, I didn't love the advice. Um, I think it was the right advice now, but my folks were like, Hey, you started this thing, you need to finish it. And after you get done, you know, college basically on you, you do whatever you want, but you know, if you've started something, you need to you need to see it through.
1: Probably the right parental advice.
0: Very good parental advice, right? Yeah. But at the time when you're going, you know, and at the time I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be a quick, like the opportunity was going to be gone. Yeah. Nobody yeah. saw that going yeah. the direction that it did.
1: I, I always say that, like, so I graduated in 99, some year, year older than you. Yeah. And looking back on it, I always, uh, like, I've wondered, like, why didn't I, because I never really even considered joining the military. Of course, I I was kind of motivated with like my knife business I was doing. Um, My parents had an excavation business I was working in. Like I kind of had like my goals and my things set out of like, I'm going to take over my parents' excavation business and make knives and hunt. And that was just kind of like, I didn't really consider anything else. And looking back at being that age, it's like, well, geez, how come I didn't raise my hand or how come I didn't volunteer to help or whatever. And I remember my like it was yesterday, I remember where I was at during 9-11, and all I remembered was thinking, uh, you fuckers are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to come over there, our boys are going to come over there and basically clean house for four or five days and kill whoever the hell we need to kill. And, and, and you know, because I remember, the, like, the first desert storm was just, like, Dusted them, go over there, do our thing, come back. Like it wasn't a big thing. So like it never even occurred to me that like I could in any way like help or they needed help or not that they needed me, but you know what I mean? Like sure. Um it never occurred to like raise my hand because like like you say, the last thing that anybody would have ever thought was that like, oh, we're gonna be embroiled in this for the next twenty years. Exactly. That was never a
0: And that's the thing is you always feel like, you know, if you you go, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to miss, kind of miss the boat, right? And that's yeah. what I
1: would have thought if I'd have joined. I've been like, by the time I get through training of whatever I go into, like, eh, this shit will be over. Yep. I'm, I know a lot of our friends that were already in, that were already Rangers or SEALs or whatever, and they were all pissed off because they didn't get to go in on the invasion because they thought that was going to be it. Yep.
0: And if you were like in and trained up at the time, right? And you were kind of on that first, uh, You know, but you're absolutely right. Like, and I think I probably had a similar, you know, thought process looking back like, well, if you're not already doing this now, it's going to be over so fast. Right. And, and then what are you going to do? And, you know, I think for me, the military always kind of resonated because I was not a kid that was like, oh, I, you know, I want to do this or I'm going to, I have a family business to go into on this. Kind of all the opportunities Mm -hmm. that I saw were like things I wasn't super interested in. Mm -hmm. And the military was one of those that just, when that seed kind of got planted It just never went away. And my uncle was somebody that I, like, had always, you know, looked up to and and just, he was just a neat guy. Like, he was a commercial fisherman in Alaska after he got out of the Navy. And he became a lawyer for the state and just did all these cool things. Um, And I just remember seeing those pictures and, like, hearing his stories and then going to that thing and just going, like, man, this is, this is what just a, you know. And then we had a, you know, my grandfather was in the Marine Corps and, we just had a history of, of, I guess, like military service in right. my family. And um, and like I said, for me, like those skill sets were things that just I liked to do. yeah um, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be like. But when you see that, um, and so ultimately, you know, I got done college. I started doing it. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll guide maybe for a year or two. And then that, you know, went a little bit further than that. Um, you know, again, just because it was going really well. And I kind of had my own little yeah. business. and. Um, you know, it's working for all these people I really enjoyed and was doing all these things. I, you know, it was, it was great. It was awesome. And then, you know, I kind of got to that point where, you know, I really had to, and then my wife and I, you know, we're kind of looking at like, Hey, what's our like long term going to be right. And retirement. You know, all yeah. You just start thinking about like, you know, if you know, you're good at, we weren't married at the time, but getting married, having kids, all that stuff. Right. And that's the direction we were kind of going.
1: Was she supportive of you going in?
0: She was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it took, you know, I had <laughs> kind of convinced her, you know, like, hey, we should move out here and do this thing. And that was going great, and we were really enjoying it. And then, you know, I remember we were sitting down, and, I, and I, you know, I don't know if convincing her was the right word, but, you know, I was definitely pitching her on this idea of, like, yeah. oh, yeah, I know this is going well, and I told you this is what I wanted to do, but now, like. I'm going to ditch you. <laughs> I want to go look at this other thing, right? And, um, And I was pretty serious about it. And I think she knew that. And then also, um, you know, just just thinking through kind of, you know, what our just career – and like I said, I never was somebody that was like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, right? Right. And mainly it came down to, you know, the 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 window was closing. I was like 25. 28 was the cutoff. Yeah. And so I said to her, like, hey, like, I don't even know if I'm in to I had had some injuries and stuff you know, from high school and, in college. And I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to be eligible. Right. Cause you never know at luckily at right. the time um, they needed guys um, in those areas. Um, but, you know, so I said, Hey, let, let's just go down this path and just see where it goes. Right. Like, let me right. go and even see if this is a reality. And then I just, you know, it kept becoming more and more of a reality up until the point where um, at the time they basically had a contract that as a civilian, you could come right off the street and you would go to, you know, basic training, and then you would go right to Bud's, and it was obviously on you. you, There was a number of, like, requirements you had to meet, and then, but they gave you a shot to go right into Bud's um, as your kind of first stop um, uh, post-boot camp, and uh, that's ultimately what I ended up doing was getting that contract, and then, you know, collectively, we made the decision um, to to go down that route and i remember the day um so i i ended up shipping out of spokane washington was like the the closest hub to fly out of basically and she packed up a u-haul and drove south to san diego and i got on a plane followed by a bus to boot camp and she kind of went down there and got us situated and i went and got started on the uh on the path to becoming a SEAL. Yeah. And, um, How,
1: how was, how was, uh, buds for you?
0: It was, uh, you know, when you're doing it, it's super hard. And when you're doing it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge for sure. But looking back, like it was awesome. Did Uh,
1: you have, uh, any particular phases that really challenged you or you got rolled or any of that? I got rolled
0: after hell week for, um, I got hurt, Um, I, you know, every phase has its challenges. It just depends on what's your challenge going to be. I mean, I had things where, um, like one of them, you have to tread water with these tanks on your back and you keep your hands out of the water and you can't put your hands under the water. And you know, for God
1: damn, that sounds tough. Well, because I, I, I swim I swim long enough for you to turn the boat around and come get my And ass. that's it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, like I had buddies who were like six foot three that were like, this is the easiest thing I've ever done. And me at like, you know, a whopping, you know, five, seven, five, eight on my best day, it was miserable. And, you know, there was everybody, I always tell people, like, if you can do, you know, a thousand pushups, they'll make you do a thousand and one. Like, they'll find the thing that's your challenge that you basically mentally have to figure out a way to overcome yeah. if you're going to be successful. And I found it all to be like very challenging, but then looking back now, I mean it was just an awesome time, you know, your your the bonds you're making with like your buddies that become like lifelong friends, um the the challenges that you're going through and like what you're learning about yourself in in um you know, I wouldn't trade what I learned about myself in that process really for anything. And I think it sets you up in the future to, to kind of have an attitude of, you know, I can, if I, if I truly want to do something and I prepare myself correctly, um, I can do it. Right. I have to figure out like the way to, to get there. But I think that when you, when you all of a sudden like develop that attitude, it, it carries with you, beyond that and i probably wouldn't be doing what i'm doing today if i hadn't done that mainly from just you know they will challenge you the barrier of entry into those programs through those selection processes are extremely challenging for a reason yeah but then when you get out of those and then you're surrounded by a bunch of other people that are wired like you know almost identical you know like i always tell people you know the seal team platoon spaces are great because it's a bunch of people that are pretty much just like you from all different backgrounds, but the overall like wiring is yeah. very similar. So like your jokes either kill it and everybody's laughing or they're like crickets because you're basically, you know, your, your audience is all very similar, Yeah, you know, sense of humor is very similar work ethics, And you, you almost get spoiled by that a little bit when you leave those communities because truly all the people who make it through those processes have something similar. Right. Um, and, and that it doesn't matter where you come from. If you come from a city or the, you know, backwoods or, or whatever, I've worked with people. There's something inside of those people who, you know, cause they don't teach you all the little mental tricks and all the, you know, human performance things, you know, when you're going through that process, right? there's something there that those people have inside of them that they're able to kind of tap into. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, I think what that comes down to is just the ability to persevere through challenges. And for me, like being a little older, um, you know, I was in my mid-20s, so I was like 26 when I actually like got going with the process. But, you know, I'd been through some stuff in my life at that point to where, and I really wanted to be there. Like I didn't want to try buds. I didn't want to tell people I was a Navy SEAL. I wanted to do that job. Right. That was my only goal. It was like I wanted whatever it takes to get to doing this job. Real world special operations, you know, soldier, Navy SEAL. I was more focused on you know, on doing that job than I was ever making it through buds or mm-hmm. and and I just really I wanted to to serve um you know, this country in that capacity. Yeah. Um,
1: Did you find Hell Week the second time to be a lot easier? I didn't go through.
0: I only went through once. Okay. I got hurt at the end, so I made it through, and then I got rolled at the end of it into the next class okay. um, to heal up, so I only had to do it once. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, but, I don't think I'd want to maybe have done it twice. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. people that do, and I'm like, good on you. Because what people don't understand is um, some people do, um, but Hell Week, you know, some people think it's like, like you know, this early – uh week and then when you're done you're done right yeah there's a whole you know i think hell week is and they may have changed it but it was like the seventh week of training where you know and then you've got i mean that's that's the basically the barrier of entry then to say like okay now we think you have what it takes to to do some more training and buds training you know they're selecting you the entire way through you know first phase second phase third phase but by the time you get into Hell Week, you're you you're already, I mean, you've been getting your ass kicked for right. weeks, and you're going to get your ass kicked for the foreseeable future. And I think that's what the people who make it through that ultimately. The best advice I ever got, and that was, don't worry about what you just did, don't worry about what's coming up, and just focus on what's in front of you and doing that. And I think that has carried over just as a life lesson, um, because you could easily be overwhelmed looking back, and you could easily be overwhelmed looking forward. And I could tell I, you. I
1: think that's what some, some guy was telling me. Uh, his mentality was uh, get to breakfast, and then his next goal is to get to lunch. Yep. And then his next goal is to get to dinner. And it was just basically he based it all meal by meal. Yep. It was just make it to the next meal, which then gave him a win. And it was an accomplishment, almost like celebrate that win within his mind, and then com- concentrate on the next meal. Instead of even days, He he broke it down three or four times a day. Yeah, I mean,
0: I had days where I broke down to inches. There was days I had enough, like, mental fortitude to be like, I can make it to breakfast. And there was days I was like, I can run to that piece of seaweed and then to the next one and then to the next one. And it really just depended on just kind of mentally where you were. um, Yeah. You know, because it really, you have to have the, you know, physically you have to be able to do this stuff, right? But you don't have to be some world-class, I saw... You know, far better athletes than me quit, and I saw far worse athletes. So
1: it's interesting. I was talking – this a couple of years ago, but I was talking with Terry hewen about – because Terry ran, I think, the pre-Buds program that we okay. set up for a while yep. um, that kind of qualified you to get to Buds. Yep. And the thought behind that was was to actually decrease the, the failure rate of Buds. They thought, well, we'll do some, kind of some pre-selection stuff, and that will actually make the rate – and the training more efficient at buds and we'll weed out some people. And he said <laughs> as a trainer, and I've talked to Andy Sumpf about this, you know, those guys would, would basically place bets as, as the, as the trainers, um, uh, on, on who they thought would, would like, all right, here comes this guy, uh, his short little guy from Montana. Like he's got no shot. And then here's this big freaking stud athlete, dude, it's Jack ex college athlete, whatever, like, Oh, he's going to be great. And, and, Terry said it didn't matter uh it didn't matter the stature of a person it didn't matter the 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 amount of muscles or lack of muscle like he did say there is a there is a certain amount of frame that you need to yourself like it's one thing to be a smaller guy it's another thing to be a smaller guy that's also super light boned with no muscle yeah like you have to be able to carry a load and like he said those ones like those are pretty easy to weed out like that guy might have all the drive in the world. He just physically is not.
0: And built. you see that happen, right? And, like, I always tell people, like, you got to be kind of like a, you know, like a, like an F-150, right? Like, yeah. you got to be able to go a certain distance, but you still got to be able to carry a load. You can't be a Prius, and you can't be a Mack truck. Right. There's this, like, happy medium that, you know, especially through those processes, because all you have is is yourself going through that. And sometimes, you know, I think a lot of people, there is, like, a misconception that every special operations person is, you know, six, 250 pounds. Yeah. And all,
1: all the guys I've gotten to know a, a bunch of, especially like in the seal community, a bunch of guys are more guys, your size, yep. um, up to six foot. yeah and, and we had, um, I had a few, uh, few guys from team six in here Friday night, uh, walking through there up here doing some training and they, uh, the one dude's big dude.
0: Oh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's very big dudes. And
1: it's kind of caught me off guard because I'm actually more used to meeting guys that are the size of Trevor or Terry or yourself.
0: One of those guys that was here, I was texting with him, and he was he didn't tell me that they came here, but they were in Montana. And he was a guy that was in my boat crew in Hell Week, right? And, like, so there's, you know, and, and you do get this variation, but I think the misconception is you have to be this, like, super muscled, huge guy where, if you think about it, you're really carrying your own body weight through that selection process. So there is a happy medium there. Um, There are guys that don't have the the frame to be able to take it. And then there's guys that are too big and it puts too much stress in you. So you kind of get this like, you know, pretty, you know, like I said, I'd say like of, of average height of average, like athletic build. But the key thing there is that you don't have to come from some like super athletic background. There's just something, and you're right. Like you can't determine who's got that, thing inside of them that it it, and ultimately what it is, is the ability to persevere through losing and not let that get to the point where, you know, you get overwhelmed by your circumstances and that's why you get these like very creative, you know, warriors that don't so much get stuck on like, well, looks like we can't do it. It's like, no, we can try to do it this way. What about that? Oh, well, and even,
1: and even Terry said through all the they've done, um, all these mental study tests, all these different things, where they've tried to test guys and weed guys out, and and even with the pre buds program, and he said even then you send guys to buds and their failure rate stayed pretty level, stays like, the same. It just is what it is, and it doesn't seem to matter how much pre work they do. You can't, you just can't judge that. Yeah,
0: like, and it's interesting because you know, like, and I can tell you a million stories, but you know, I, this is something that I always think about. Was we were doing this run one time where. know you get these instructors that are really fast and then you know the further that that the group gets spanned out you know there's different levels basically of punishment along the way and god forbid you're like not that fast of a runner and you're like falling back towards the back because like it's just going to be a miserable afternoon and there was there we were coming back and there was a gate that we usually stopped at and that was the end right so when you got there like it was done and this one day this guy just keeps running And so the whole group keeps running except for about 20 people and they just go, no, like mentally that's the end. Like I, I'm not going any further. And those 20 guys quit. The rest of the class runs down the beach, maybe 200 yards, no shit, 200 yards. And they started stretching and basically doing yoga while those 20 guys watched that happen. They had a hundred percent, the physical capability to run another 200 yards they mentally became like overwhelmed by their circumstance and thought i don't know when we're going to stop and probably the guys who didn't quit were like i don't care when we're going to stop i'm here regardless right? right there's no and i think i think that like that perseverance that ability to overcome just mentally the the challenge um and again not looking at what you just did or what's coming up, but just focusing on what's in front of you and trying to do that the best you can has been something that's definitely carried with me, um, you know, throughout my time in the Navy into, you know, transitioning out of the Navy and in, in civilian. I, I, um,
1: I, I've, I tell my kids all the time and I don't care really what it applies to. I always tell my kids, uh, it's like stacking grains of sand and might be a corny analogy, but I always tell them like, if you have a bucket I mean, you throw a grain of sand in it, it means nothing. And you throw five more grains of sand in it, it also still means nothing. But you keep throwing those grains of sand in over time. One day you wake up and you throw grain of sand in, and it rolls off the top and falls out. And that bucket's full, you know. And I think it's similar, like, and I'm not comparing myself in in, in any way to what you guys have done physically, but, like, to start off, say, starting Montana Knife Company – with the goals that we have in mind and we're still like the bucket still only has like an inch of sand in it from what I'm concerned with, with our, with our company. But if, if I looked at just the entire task it was going to take to get to where my eventual goals are with this company, like it would be overwhelming. And we just not even try
0: it. Yep. hundred um, percent.
1: Because there's so many opportunities along the way for failure. There's so much unknown that it really is like at times it's daunting. Like yep. at times I'm just like, Jesus, I don't know. Uh, but we just, we just come in here every day and we just kind of keep building towards it. And I I gave a big, long talk this morning in our meeting to our team about our goals. And, and, uh, again, it's, and I tell my kids, even if it's like working out, right, you you go bench press one day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing was like really accomplished. Nothing was really gained, but you go bench press every day, uh, for a year, like you're going to see a major difference. Um, and it doesn't matter, it might be their homework, you know, like, if they do their homework well, and they, they do a bunch of studying today, it, you know, may or may not affect something tomorrow. But if they do it every day for the entire school year, they're gonna end up with straight A's. So it doesn't matter what it is, if it's a physical challenge, mental challenge, growing a business, um, you know, buying a ranch, you know, and the idea of building a ranch or whatever, you um, it's that stacking of grains of sand of just, just pay attention to the grain of sand that's in between your fingers at that moment.
0: Yep. And getting it in the bucket. Right. And then like eventually and that, that is all really, you know, buds is, is every day you're putting your one grain of sand in the bucket. And then all of a sudden you're there. And like, you know, you basically lose the whole time. Like even when you win, there's some sort of like you get less punished than somebody else. But uh, at the end of the day, then you made it right. And there is big wins along the way. Right. Um, But you get, to the end where you did it. But then what I love about that and when, you know, what I still love about, you know, the, my job now is that the day you show up though, and you think like, oh man, I did it on right. a Navy SEAL. The day you walk in, like you're quickly reminded that you're the least trained Navy SEAL on you're the face lower of than the earth. Whale Yeah. Shit. And you walk yeah. in and like, once again, it's like, you're always a new guy to somebody. Right. And, um, I think that attitude though, is good to carry over in whatever you're doing, because, you know, there's probably a knife maker out there that looks at you and goes, man, Josh has only been doing it for so long. Yeah, right. he's doing a good job. But then there's guys looking up to you going, man, this guy is like the right. pinnacle, right? And I think just from like a, just in general, having like that kind of new guy mindset and, and just remembering that like the bucket can get kicked over at any point. And then like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Right. And that happens in business. That happens in life. And I think with my kids, like one of the biggest thing, if they can take like one takeaway from me, um, as their parent, it's, you have to have the ability to persevere through challenges. And the more that they do that kind of incrementally, and the more that they're able to put the, you know, the grain in the bucket every day, regardless of what the day looks like. And if the bucket gets kicked over, you start over. Right. Right. Um, If they can learn that, they're not going to get steamrolled by, like, life's challenges, especially small challenges. Yep. And I see so many people today where just these not even, you know, minuscule issues become, like, these huge mountains where... Yeah,
1: you blow a tire on your car. It ruins your day. You don't have the money to pay for it at that moment, and and then you just let that compound into a huge issue.
0: Yes, it ruins your day, and, you know, and I think that's one of the things, like, you watch... Another interesting thing about like watching people go through like training and selection processes is that um, if you're doing, you know, different like target assaults and things like that, you know, what you could watch somebody have, you know, a bad room becomes a bad floor becomes a bad second floor becomes a bad building becomes a bad day becomes a bad week and then you're gone right where if they the guys that were really good could have a bad room. And it's not like they didn't think about it on the way home. Right. Short but memory. they could shake it off. And the second room they went into, like it was like the first one never happened. And then they had a bad, uh, you know, they had a, a, a decent floor, a great top floor, a good building, and they were there the next day. Right? Right. They learned from their mistakes. They got, But they didn't let it, I'm not going to say they didn't internalize it.
1: Let it compound. They
0: didn't let it compound and they didn't let it ruin their performance moving forward. They like took it on board fixed it and move forward. Um,
1: I always tell my kids momentum is such a funny thing and we actually saw it yesterday. And it's, again, it's trivial, but my daughter's eighth grade volleyball team never lost a game last year. And they have never lost a game this year until last night. And the first serve of the game uh, came right at my daughter, terrible pass off her arms out of bounds I think she made another mistake right away then another one of the really good cuz my daughter and this other girl kind of the two are better players on the team that other girl made a mistake and then you kind of saw their faces get kind of long and then and then all of a sudden like they're down 8 nothing and then they're down 10 to 2 and you could just see then everyone on the team started making mistakes and you know they didn't really They kind of almost flushed that one away because game two, they almost came back and won, but there again, they lost that one and they ended up losing this match. But I told my kids when I was watching it, the momentum and, and you see it in all. And that's why I think sports are so good for kids is, Mm -hmm. is how do you, how do you shake off that first bad four or five points and rally back and, 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 and have that, that grit to come back and win. And how do you, See your teammates struggling and not allow that to affect you, and now you begin begin to struggle. Instead of picking them up, you know they they could have used a few teammates to help pick them up. And it's uh, the mo- momentum is an is a really really interesting thing because it also works in the other way when things start going really well and whatnot. But I I I, I just think the life the life lessons whether it's sports, business, whatever they're also intertwined and so similar. And I, and I love what you were saying. You know, when I, when I became a lineman, I went through an apprenticeship. It's a three and a half year apprenticeship. And a lot of guys say that the lineman world is, is, is about as close to the military feel as you can have outside of the military, where it's a brotherhood. Uh, Your lives are literally in the hands of your guys around you. Um, You know, there's a lot of communication involved when you're in the bucket truck and you're around, you know, 7,000 to a hundred thousand volts up in the bucket and you're counting on your 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 teammate in the bucket to tell you, hey, Greg, watch your head, hot wire behind you, coming hot, coming on, like all this communication that's happening and you're trusting, or I tell you, Greg, that wire's dead, you can go ahead and grab it. Like I have to trust what you There's say. There's a lot of trust, yeah. There's so <coughs> much trust that goes on there. And during your apprenticeship, you're just a piece of shit, yeah. and you're treated a lot of times even maybe beyond unfair. Uh, And a lot of that's designed just to see, like, how are you going to react? Are you going to explode and say, fuck you, and and lose your mind, throw your hard hat, and walk off the job? Or are you just going to eat it, eat your shit sandwich, and go clean the truck, and and let it roll off your back, and just keep moving forward with the task? Yeah, nobody
0: wants to see how you are after you win, right? right. Everybody wants to see how you are after you lose, or when you're not at your best, right? Because that's kind of when your true colors...
1: Yeah. If, if I rip your ass in front of your f- four closest friends, how are you going to take that ass to one? Yep. And are you going to be super defensive, get offended, blow up? Are you going to cry? You know, are you going to fight? Are you going to cry? Or are you just going to kind of bite your fucking tongue and move on and either improve what you were doing, fix what you're doing, or maybe it was completely unfair and it was just a test. Yeah. Um, but it shows everyone around you a lot about who you are. But it's interesting. You get all through that, and you kind of want to kill your foreman. By the time you turn out, you're like, I'm going to turn out. When I have that journeyman ticket in my hand, I'm going to go beat some guys' asses. Yeah, yeah. You know, And but it's funny. You walk in, and you're like, I'm a journeyman lineman. Like, And you walk in the room, and you go on the next job, and you're still kind of treated like an apprentice because you haven't built any trust yet. You're You're now a journeyman. You are treated different. You are treated a little bit better. But you're not just turned loose on your own. Yeah. You're not not ready to go run the service truck all night long by yourself and troubleshoot shit and not, you know, the linemen aren't going to come to the job in the middle of the night and trust everything you have to say just Mm -hmm. yet. Like, you're not a proven lineman. You know, you have that ticket, but it still doesn't mean shit. And I think it's – I've heard that with the SEAL stuff is it's so similar. You report to your team, you walk in the door, and it's, Greg, go clean the bathroom.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. no, you walk in you're the least trained guy – you're the new guy, you know, you're, you're the liability. Yeah. You're putting your, you know, trying in a, in a cage and you're getting it back when, when the guys who've been doing the job for a long time feel like you are ready. Right. And that goes all the way through, you know, but you're always going to be looked at like that by somebody. And I know, yeah. I don't know, um, that, so like super close family friend of mine, um, who basically like taught me to hunt when I was a kid, like I've been archery hunting since I was like I don't know, like 11 or 12, but, um, this like super good family friend of ours, who was a lineman, uh, journeyman lineman, like in watching him go through his career. And still to this day, like he's like one of those guys that literally I've never seen him YouTube a single thing. He can fix anything. He comes up to the ranch all the time. It just like, you go like, Hey, this truck's broken. And just the, like the amount of knowledge that this guy has, Mm -hmm. but watching him, his whole career as a lineman. Um, so I know a little bit about it, not. I've never done it myself, but just mm-hmm. you know, and um, but yeah, it's absolutely you know you have the skill set, right? They're the foundation, right? But you got to build, and that that goes back to again, like the you know starting businesses to you know going to school to whatever you're doing. But I think the biggest thing is is how do you react right when it doesn't go your way? Right? How do you react when you walk in there that first day and they go, yeah, that that pin that you just spent two years earning, um, why don't you go ahead and take that off? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and put it here until we say you've earned it. Right. But then there's a lot more meaning and value to it when you get it from your peer group and from your community than when you, you know, and you still earned it. Right. But but there's a much different feeling to when the when they do say, hey, you know what? Hey, Josh, you take the truck tonight. And when you come back and go this, this and this happened and the guy goes, oh, okay, cool. And you can see the trust building building, and you can see your skill set getting better. And then you get to the point where you look back and you realize that that first day you walked in, you, how little you really did know. Right. And I think the ability to, to, to go like, man, like in, and I think to have that, you know, we call it like the FNG attitude and it, that is an attitude that will serve you well in whatever you're doing because it's FNG fucking new guy. Okay. So you walk in and you're the FNG, you know, you're the fucking new guy. And I, I, there's some leeway there, right? Like, because you're the new guy, the expectation is like, you're not going to be perfect at everything, but you should be striving. And,
1: and it's their job to, to put you in a position where you can succeed. Correct. Yeah.
0: And you want to find somebody that you feel like is a, you know, a a stellar performer and be like, I want to be like that guy. Mentor. Right. And then you, you start, you know, trying your best, but you have to you have to be able to correct and get better, but you also have to realize that the skill set that you have is just the foundation. And I think that's important in whatever you're doing because it keeps you from from if you if you have that kind of new guy mindset all the time, regardless of where you are in your career, it's gonna keep you wanting to get better, learning new techniques, building, growing on top of that foundation and never getting to the point where you're like, man, I've got this figured out. Right? right. Like I've, cause that is the attitude. That's when you get bit. It's when you get bit. That's like when, like, what do they say? It's like, uh, be humble or get humbled. Right. Yeah. And like, and you know how it is. I mean, starting businesses, running businesses from, from nothing. Um, there's days where you probably feel like, I know I do. I'm like, man, I think this is going to work.
1: I think there's something, some stat I heard and I don't, I don't probably have it exactly right. I'm not going to be quoted on this, but like the average age or the average number of years that linemen that get killed in the line of duty have served is over 20 years. And it's, it's, it's because of like that complacency, sure. uh, the, the lack of, of, you know, applying the safety controls that, you know, the testing the wire to see if it's dead or adding the extra piece of cover, it's just that, like, y- y- you know, like going into uh, going, you know, going into knock down a house potentially or whatever. And, and if you've done it for 20 years and it's just like, ah, this is an op, just like every other one I've gone through versus the new guy that's hyper vigilant, hyper aware, um, you know, and, and I can't really compare it to the seal world, but I know with the lineman stuff, um, you can get very, very complacent.
0: Well, you get away with it once, right? Yeah. You do it once and you go, ah, I know, but nothing happened. Right. And then you do it again. And then all of a sudden,
1: you don't clear the room exactly the right way with the right techniques. And
0: what was interesting, though, and another story that like, I just think about a lot, even right now, um, is I was working for this guy who had been doing it like the highest level for a really long time. And um, we were like, we were doing a a job and the, you know, the tides just kind of changed, not in our favor. And I remember he was like, hey, we're out of here. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, here's these this guy. I mean, I was thinking, like, oh, these guys are going to want to go, like, really get after it. Right. And uh, and I think so. When we got back, I was like, man, like, what was? It? And he was like, oh, if the odds aren't in our favor to win, I'm not playing. Right. Yeah. Here is a guy that had enough experience to not care what anybody thought. If that had been a younger, newer guy right. wanting to kind of prove themselves. Yeah. There may have been. Let's the, fucking roll them. Let's do yeah. it. But probably at the expense of somebody getting hurt or killed. Yeah. This guy had seen it so much. All he cared about was, was winning. Yeah. Not at and and at the expense of even somebody being like, oh man, like you know you you waved off on that, and that has stuck with me. That lesson in his, um, confidence in the skill set that he knew he'd seen it so many yep. times and hadn't cut those corners. And
1: that, that's an age thing for sure. And, and an experience thing. Cause that that's very similar to, we always took pride in not killing people's power. Like we can fix shit hot and we can keep everyone in power. And it's kind of like this, it's, it's a pride ego, whatever, but like, you know, shit's gone completely South, but, but if we kill the power, we're going to have to kill maybe 500 more homes to fix this or 20 more homes or whatever. And it's like, the young guys are like, ah, we can we can get that pole in there or we can get that wire transferred fine. And like, and sometimes there had to be that old foreman that would step in and be like, we're killing the fucking power. Like, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not. And I remember I had one of my linemen, Doug Amos, tell me one day, he goes, I refuse to go to your wife's house and tell your wife and your kids, you died on my crew. Yeah. Um, because he said I've already had to do that. Yeah. And he told me about walking up and uh the little kid running up to him asking him if he uh you know, where's my daddy? Did you bring my daddy with you? And Doug was walking up there to tell the wife what happened.
0: Yeah, you do that you know. once or twice or more times and it'll make you think real hard about, you know, again where are those decisions coming from? Sometimes it's coming from a point of, well, I got to do that because I'm going to prove this, right? But if you really, I, in those lessons and that lesson in particular, just because of the level of experience um, that this particular guy had, and and I was completely wrong about what I thought mm-hmm. they were going to do. They did the opposite and it really made me think, and then it made me think about other situations that I've been in with people that were less experienced that were kind of rushing to, yeah. And you almost have to have that, um, you know, but avoiding those, you know, complacency traps, I think are just, it's really important. And when you watch the people who have done it for a long time, you know, the, the people who don't cut those corners and and do it right every time are the guys that in gals that generally don't have those like catastrophic failures at Mm -hmm. those levels but it's really hard because we all do it.
1: It's an intangible, and it's just there's such a fine line there between being scared of your job, being scared of the possible consequences, and being and hesitant, which as a lineman, there's no such thing as the hesitancy thing isn't a you can hesitate all you want. Mm-hmm. Like it's better to hesitate and really think twice. You know, in the job you were doing, hesitation can also cost lives absolutely um so so you know that's definitely where there's a difference where we can hesitate and talk about it for hours until we want to make a a decision uh usually that was where if everyone was hesitating too much that was your answer sure we can kill it yep you know like we're not coming up with an answer quick enough here it's clearly too risky yeah and there's times i
0: tell my guys now where i'm like hey if there's some task that needs to be completed i'm not saying it doesn't need to be completed but let's not do it a certain way that's going to like rush into somebody basically, you know, getting hurt or rush right. into a bigger problem. Right. Um, if there's a, another way or like, maybe we do it, need to come back tomorrow right. when we're, you know, better suited to win. Right? right. And, you know, I just, that is something that I think about a lot as I, you know, whether it's, you know, kind of helping like mentor like new managers and mm-hmm. just thinking about our business and thinking about like, are we being strategic enough mm-hmm where you should want to go in there and just like crush Mm -hmm. whatever that opponent is um and I think that's that like commitment to success where like it's not always perfect right and and there are days like I was saying you know like I have days where I wake up and I'm like man I think this is going to work like I think Mm -hmm. the business is going to work and then I've got days where I go like there's no way this thing's going to work like this could you know, and, and you go through, but but. yeah, it's
1: the same. It's the same. And, and a lot of people might wonder how like these, uh, you know, stories of, of, you know, combat or stories of, you know, linemen can, can potentially relate to business. And to me, it's the same way with our business. Like I hesitate every day or like have the decisions every day of like, uh, part of me wants to rush in, like, borrow a shit ton of money yep. and be like, man, we're, we're growing. Like this thing is going to be the biggest freaking knife company in the planet. And we're going to just borrow all we can borrow and we're going to go after it. And we're going to just dive straight into this. And then there's other days where I'm like, holy shit, I don't want to hire anybody anymore. I don't want to do any, I don't want to even, it's like almost paralyzing the stress of like not wanting to make those moves or sure. any moves because you're afraid of failure. Right. And yeah. so it's like this weird combination in intangible, intangible thing where you have to have an intuition of what you think's right and wrong and and like when
0: to go at it hard and when to because I think there's also a problem of kind of the analysis paralysis right like there's got to be an action point and I think people that are you know good entrepreneurs good at running other businesses um, are people that get enough information to make the right decision but don't rush into it Right. To where, you know, cause, and there's a lot of pressure, like when you've got payroll and you've got a lot of people and their families that are counting on you Yep. and you know, it's on you to make those decisions and you can't be so, um, slow to make them that you don't do anything, but you can't rush into them. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you just see so much pair, like I tell people all the time between like the military and production agriculture, there's just so many parallels Mm -hmm. that those lessons learned go both ways. And you see just so many similarities between, you know, number one, like the type of people that are doing that and the type of jobs that those are, mm-hmm. but also the decision-making matrix mm-hmm. and the ability to actually kind of tell when maybe the the momentum or the snowball is is rolling in the wrong direction. And right. what are you going to do to break that thing before it gets too big? Turns into an avalanche. Exactly. and And I think that's something that, people that come from those backgrounds where I like call them, um, you know, they're, they're consequence based jobs, right? If you don't do those jobs correctly, there's a very real consequence and it's not somebody sending you an email and telling you or somebody yelling at you, right? There's a real consequence to not doing those correctly. And I think the, you know, a big thing with those types of jobs is it forces you to recognize like when the momentum is in your favor and when it's not. But if you don't have a good gauge of where you're at in that cycle to make like big decisions at that point. Right. Right. You know,
1: what, what was your uh, specialty then? What were you trained for in the seals to do? So
0: I went to SV team one in Hawaii to start out with, which is like heavily a reconnaissance based uh, team. I was a sniper. I was a comms guy. Um, Uh, I went to, you know, dive soup, like those sorts of schools and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spent a number of years there. And then I went to the East Coast. I worked in the training command um, for a while over there, like teaching other guys. I'd gotten hurt in Hawaii. Um, So I worked there training guys for a little bit. And then I went. How'd you get hurt? I got hurt diving. Um, It was kind of a weird deal. Um, I basically got the bends. But then as part of that, there's like a membrane between your left and right ventricle and your heart that I I'm pretty sure I tore it doing that stuff because i never had any, like, issues before. But anyway, the I had a, basically a bubble go through that and then um, got the bends from that. So I had to get that fixed, my heart fixed, and then I had to recover because it took a little bit to figure out, like, kind of what was going on. And so I got, in that process, I moved to Virginia Beach um, and got that done there. And then I worked in the training command, and then I went to another command there um, for a few years. And then I got out in 2017. So I did about 10 years um, okay. between the active duty and the reserves. But my job was always like more like small team kind of reconnaissance based, um, stuff mm-hmm. is, is I kind of started out down that path and kind of just stayed down. Did that you enjoy route. it? I did. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome.
1: What was that decision? You know, you, at that 10 year mark, you're kind of at that point where it's like, if you you re-up and go any longer then you might as well, Then you're doing 20. Yep. What was that decision to get out?
0: Yeah. You know, um, there was a couple things that had done it, um, or that played into it for sure. Um, we'd had three kids in the process. Um, my time in the Navy was awesome. Like I look at that as like, I look back at it as some of the working with like the absolute best people just, I, I loved it and it was going really well. Um, and, you know, a big thing was just the the family stuff and then looking forward and going, okay, you know, just here's the jobs that I've done. Like, is there more things out there like that? Is this kind of like, you know, is the momentum, um, you know, going in, in the direction you want it to? Um, just work-wise, too, like what commands are, are going to be available? Mm-hmm. Um, basically, for me, there was like one particular command I really wanted to go to. Um, that came off the table. And when that happened, I kinda just started looking at, you know, what I had done, what I kind of saw my opportunities. But the biggest thing was we'd had three kids in the process and it ultimately came down to like where we wanted to raise our family. And you were still married. I was. Yeah. I got Which
1: that's not uh I mean, you know, it's 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 really amazing when you think about The stress on a relationship when you're super young, you move to Montana and you're doing the fly fishing stuff and then you're changing, going to the military and you're moving to Hawaii and you're moving to Virginia beach. Plus you're deploying like, um, you know, the time spent away, like that's, uh, you beat the odds by being able to stay married to still be married today. Like that's a tough, a lot of guys can't make it through that, which is a lot about your wife. My wife's the
0: same. Like she puts up with, you know, all my crazy stuff um and has been like like you know i wouldn't have been able to do any of this without her help and uh, excuse me support Mm -hmm. um and yeah so we got married it was actually kind of funny we got married between buds and sqt we had basically like one weekend we had to cancel like four other dates and then i went to alaska for like three or four weeks the following monday um our honeymoon. I I was going to STV school in Florida. So we were going to drive from San Diego to Florida and go to some fun cities along the way. And then a bunch of my SEAL team buddies ended up, you know, they were like, well, we'll come to one stop. And then literally came with us the entire (laughs) way. Uh, And it turned out to be a great trip, but it was like every stop along the way, they're like, oh yeah, we'll go to that next spot. Do you still owe her a honeymoon then? I pretty much do. Yeah. Yeah. We (laughs) haven't got that one checked off yet, but yeah, so we got, um, so all through that. And then- you know the biggest thing came down to just like where we wanted to raise our kids and my kids you know I'd still be in right now um if you know we kind of took that next jump forward and i really wanted to raise our family out west montana was our like primary place we wanted to be but i didn't want to come back with my kids when they were like you know in their teenage You're years in right. teen missed... yeah i yeah. wanted them to grow up here like i remember my wife and i we like we would go skiing um before we had kids and in when we first moved out here <laughs> And, um, you'd see these tiny little kids just ripping down the mountain. I remember like we had this conversation once on a chairlift, like we want our kids to look like that. Right. Right. And, you know, so we just looked at the age of our kids and kind of, um, if we were going to do it, that was the time to do it. And, you know, my enlistment was up. Um, and like I said, I've always been really proud of like, I feel like I've left the other careers that I've had at kind of at highs. Not ever for a reason of, like, well, this sucks or, like, this isn't going well or there's not, like, great opportunities moving forward. And I think it's hard to, to one capacity, it's hard to do that. But it's also, like, you, you, you get to leave uh, on kind of your terms to a mm-hmm. certain extent. And it was a really hard decision for both of us. Like, mm-hmm. a really hard decision. Um,
1: yeah, because you're leaving a guarantee, Guaranteed. uh you know your retirement your pay your benefits like yeah um it's like when i quit my lineman stuff like around here it's one of the best jobs it's a great
0: help. job right and it's hard to make that yep um
1: and you're bailing off into the unknown it's 100 like you weren't walking away into a contractor job that was like guaranteed no, or something no not yeah. at all
0: and, and and again you want to talk about like you know the pressure of having people who rely on you a family and you know, and now you're going to make this another move, you know, kind of, again, not exactly sure. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I knew where we wanted to be. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. Like I had this list of all the things like basically we needed to do to get here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, from selling your house to finding a job to getting the family out there to all these things, right? Where are we going to go? How are we going to, you know, and I remember we got out here, and I remember like we were all here and my mom was there and like we sat at the table and I had this list and I pulled it out and like read through it. And at the time, like we were talking about before, you could easily have been overwhelmed by all of that. Right. But it was like, you know, each grain of, of sand in the bucket added up to us. Being, and I will say, you know, that transition out of the military is really hard, um, mainly because you, you leave this group of people that is just... I mean, it is just such it's hard to even describe
1: well, it's, it's like that loss of that family connection. hundred percent. It's yeah. all your
0: friends. It's right. like your' your it's your family. Like when we lived in Hawaii, like our friends were our family because nobody else lived out there. So I mean, you're talking holidays, weekends, everything you're doing with these people um and and again, just in some of the greatest friends I'll ever have and still have, and I'm just so fortunate to have like been a part of that community and, and the, the people, like they push you to be better. Right. Um, and some of those things still, the way we run our business today and like the people we hire is you want to be surrounding yourself with people that are better than you. Like I won't hire somebody that doesn't bring a skill set that's better than all of ours in some capacity. Right. But you learn all these things. And, and I just feel like, I know for a fact, like I wouldn't be sitting where I am today if I hadn't, done that. The opportunities I had were, to, you know, the people I got to, that I still get to interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I can't say enough positive things about that experience. So leaving that into kind of this unknown was really hard. Um, and people tell you like, Oh, this transition is hard. It's going to be hard. I will be the first to admit, like I, I did not give it the, probably the attention. Um, I was like, Oh, I've done all these things, right. It was a new CEO, blah, blah, right. blah and and then you start to do that and you know you you realize pretty quickly um you know what you've left i guess cuz well
1: the the, ch- other, the other thing that you you're leaving that i don't think is talked enough about especially with the the challenge with suicides and all this stuff with veterans is everybody talks about you know the combat and all the all the injuries and that kind of stuff but to me it's also has to be from what i've observed um the structure of it, Uh, especially for guys that go in like you, you, before you went in, you kind of still like were involved in the real world with business and kind of having to make your way and stuff. But if you go in at 18, 19 years old and for 20 years, your day is laid out and you're basically told what to do for 20 years, depending on what your job is in the military. Like there's so much structure around that so much known uh, that then all of a sudden you step out, and now it's all on you. <clears throat> no one's telling you what the next move is, or where you're going to be, or what time, or whatever. It's got to be a major challenge, um, to just to just to just be without that structure, um, and especially for guys that really need like, um, or just never experienced. That. It, it feels like the special operations guys tend to work a little bit more loosely, like you know, you guys, whether it's schedules or structure or whatever, but like. Especially, I think a lot of guys that are just really in a job and it's just like so structured. Yeah, they know
0: the day. next thing, right? And they the, the staircase is laid out in front of you. Yeah. This is what you have to do. And if you do that, you go to the next block, yeah. right? And it, and you go on, on and and so on and so forth. Obviously, with like business, there's no, especially if you're starting new business, Starting your own, yeah. You don't know where that stair, you're, you know, there's no, hey, you've done this, this and this. You could do it all right and it might not work, right? right? And... I, I do think people get very like that that structure there you know it it it's laid out for you success is and, and, laid and, out for and you And you
1: can argue that too if you're uh just working in business if you're not a member of the military if you're if you're working for the power company like it was
0: Same thing y- right You
1: are you t- yep. 8 to 4:30 Yep it doesn't matter really what happens during the day at 4:30 you're done you go home Yep and it doesn't you know there's no ramifications on your personal life and then next day you go at 8 and you go back to work Yep Um, and it's that way with lots and lots of jobs, but when you're starting your own business, there, there is no structure. There is no playbook.
0: Yeah. And you're right. Like if somebody gave you the playbook and said like, Hey, this is how you build a successful knife company. These are the steps. This is when you borrow money. This is when you don't, you know, when you hit this, you do that. Right. You're figuring all of that out. And so am I. Right. Um, and that, I mean, some people are not cut out for that. Like right. they are not cut out for the commitment it takes. And like one thing I will say about the military that I think is interesting. Um, number one, you, you know, not even on deployments, but just your training schedule from the, you know, special operations community um, is just so intense and you're gone all the time. But there's no like, oh, hey, like there's an option of going or not going right. Right. All of a sudden when you're when you're a civilian and you're running and probably, you know, being a lineman was similar. It's like this is the schedule. This is where I got to mm. be. If there's a storm, you go. There's not a lot of like, do you really have to do that? Right. right. Then you're running your own business. The same level of commitment to be successful is there, but there's more like outward pressure of like, well, do you really have to go to work on a Saturday? Right. Do you re- there's no set time of when you're on or when you're off. Right. And it, and it at times, like, I don't know if you felt this way, but like there's exterior pressures of saying like, where before it was like, Oh, well, it's my job. Like I, I'm in the military. I'm in alignment. I right. have to go do this right. now. Right. And
1: yeah, Greg, do you want to go fishing on Saturday? And like, it, it, and it's funny because like when I was a full-time knife maker, uh, it was almost like I, people didn't consider that I had a real job. For sure. Like if you're a rancher, like, well, you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to spray weeds today. Yep. Like you, we, could, we could go fishing. You could do it tomorrow. It's like, it's almost like, uh, or I'll stop in and chat with Greg for two hours and have coffee. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's weird because a lot of times when you have certain there's certain kinds of jobs that you know as a rancher you don't really have a job you own a ranch but yep. you don't you don't have to do anything you set the schedule but in reality you understand you do have to do certain things and you have to have discipline and force yourself to be like hey it's summertime this is when that there's a reason that there's the saying you know you make hay when the sun's shining Yep. you know you, those are the times you do have to be disciplined and put seven days a I week think day. what's
0: hard is you make the priority list right right and so then people kind of go like well you can change the priority list right. right but but you're setting the pace you're setting the schedule right and there's challenges to that right there's like well why don't
1: you just well and it becomes your life I mean does. that's that's what people don't understand about ranching farming um
0: any business, if you though.
1: don't enjoy it to a certain degree, and yes, it, it, almost any business, but if you don't enjoy it to a certain degree, you probably shouldn't be doing it because it is going to be who you are and what you do. Yep. Um, and it's going to be what your kids do, it's going to be what your wife does. Uh, because it is a you know, those cows have to be fed every morning and every night. Yep. It's a 365 day commitment that you have to commit to.
0: Yeah. And when we started Little Ball Cattle Company, um, you know, as, as you learn, like all those different things that have to happen again, back to like, there's consequences to, to the actions of doing or not doing and they're real. Right. Um, and it it just, um, I think the, to make a business start from scratch and work, the level of commitment that it takes to do that, is some, it, some people are not cut out for it right? right because it does take precedent over birthdays and you know um bedtimes and right. anniversaries. anniversaries and 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 that's not easy right? right um and there's times where like you have to have in my opinion though and and it's it, it's probably not right the 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 best way to be at times but you have to be at that level of commitment to the success of that thing working Mm -hmm. to where there isn't a lot of balance. But
1: there's also some amazing benefits that other people in this world would just never get to experience, you know, and and the the lessons taught with your kids, the time spent with your kids, frankly, um, the time spent, you know, like, maybe you're kind of forcing them to be out there on Saturday, helping hay or moving water or doing whatever you're doing. But But down the road, they'll look back and be like, man, you know, they spent more time with their parents than most of their friends ever did. And they learned lessons that their friends didn't learn. It it was that way with me with excavation when I was working for my folks. And I really enjoyed it. But, I mean, in the summertime, like, we worked. Yep. um, Because you only could make money from April to November. And then the rest of the time, you know, ground froze up. We weren't working. And so it was a a seven-day-a-week deal and uh, you know on Sundays we took a little bit of time off but generally we were maintaining equipment uh, maybe looking at jobs like just kind of getting geared up for Monday but it was for sure six and a half days a a, a week and so we didn't go to the lake we didn't go uh, boating and fishing a lot and camping we did a little bit more stuff a little bit more in the winter um, just because of the seasonality of it and I think it's similar with farming and ranching probably more so with farming with ranching than you're feeding cows and you're dealing with shit in the winter yeah
0: it never really ends i mean do your kids come over here and help um, a
1: a little bit they they did more in the beginning now that we have so many employees and they're and they're just so busy with their sports. sure um but they
0: watch you doing it right and they they have a understanding of what it takes to, to in
1: the beginning my daughter sadie at 14 was helping i told all the employees this morning she was helping grind all my handles yeah Um, in the very, very beginning of this, it was kind of all hands on deck.
0: Yeah, it's a family. But back to like what you were saying with working, you know, with your folks, did you find that to be, you know, rewarding just the time you got to spend? Oh, I loved it. it. it, Yeah. I love, I don't know why, but like, you know, I love working, like I like working with my wife. I like working with my kids. There's challenges there. But I think from like our family structure, the fact that we can go out and do, you know, what could be like stressful work together and not be yeah. screaming. But like my daughter and I, the other day we had a bunch of neighbor cattle on us. It was Sunday morning and I'm like, Hey, I need, I need you to come help me. And we got to move these cattle off and we got to sort, you know, two of our own and take them back. And uh, she's 10 and we went out there and had such a nice morning. You know, we got our horses ready. We go out, you know, she, I'm like, Hey, I'll go get these gates. You know, she's driving cattle. I come back. I'm like, Hey, what's the hold up?" She's like, I got a little bit nervous with that one bowl. So I just held what I got, waited till you to come back. And I'm like, okay, cool, let's do this. You know, and then she's working one side, I'm moving stuff. And we had a great time, but what was cool was like, she learned some stuff, you know, I learned some stuff, but the cool part was, was like, we were working together. yeah. And that's what like with your kid and to have that time um, together, it's just something is, it's neat. And they're also.
1: Yeah. Like, that's that intangible that you can't measure that, you know, um, you know yeah you're not going to spend a lot of the time at the lake water skiing together but that's that's one of those things that's really hard for other people to understand or
0: yeah but you're doing things like you know like I'll take my kids or my business partner's kids and and we'll go um, to one of our partner ranches and you know we'll brand calves for three days and they'll right. sleep and live out of the horse trailer with one of their best friends or their sister right and we're doing that stuff together yep and what I think is cool is like you're actually learning then like your your kids are actually seeing you run and manage stuff. So like what they're gaining yep. secondhand on how to deal with people and how to deal with employees and how to build something and yep. um, how to be a good teammate and and all of those things that you get time together to do that other people wouldn't, have, like you can't bring your kids to a lineman job, right? but you could bring them over here and show them how stuff works or, hey, this is how you... Yeah. This is how you build knives. Like, this is how you grind handles. This is why it's important yeah, and, and to I'm,
1: do it. I'm very open and talk to my kids about the challenges of what we're trying to do and the business and building. And actually, even with the employees. I mean, very open with our employees of all this because I want them to see and understand fully what we're what the struggles are all the way along. So they can see how, if they want to start their own business someday, sure, they, they actually maybe have a chance of succeeding at doing that. So how did you... How do you go from the seals to buying a ranch in Montana?
0: Yeah, um, so I got out in 2017. Uh, my business partner um, Tim Sheehy had started two businesses at the time. Um, he was his Navy SEAL team guy as well, and um, he had an aerial wildfire fighting company as well as a uh, military technologies company. Fortunately for me, like they had an opportunity. I was moving out here. They already set up. And so I started working for the military technologies company and that was again, just like straight startup style, like a bunch of people who really didn't know exactly what they were doing. It was a bunch of kids from MSU and a couple veterans and somehow we turned that into an actual company that was providing solutions um, to the military and um, Tim was able to basically build and grow and take that company and sell it in, I think, 2019. In the meantime of that, I'd been doing some cattle stuff on the side just because I like doing it. Right. And I had a good friend of mine that basically just invited me up to another friend's ranch. And it was kind of the first thing that really clicked for me after getting out. Like, I had a great job, great opportunity. It went super well. Um, you know, nothing wrong with it by any means. It's just, it was definitely not the right fit. It was a lot of office time. Right. Um, it just, it, it just, I don't know. I just didn't have that like really, that it just didn't give me that like spark that every other job I'd ever had, had had. And so, um, I had been there early, like one of the first, you know, handful of people there. And then, you know, I, I basically was like, I really enjoyed doing this cattle thing. And I'd had, you know, I'd worked at some ranches in the winter and stuff when we lived out here before. Um, but nothing really to that, that scale. I grew up riding horses and stuff. And I always liked that stuff. I grew up helping friends, you know, on, you know, in that had agriculture businesses in their family or whatever, when I was a kid. And, um, and so when I started just helping people again, like, you know, it just, I don't know, I just really enjoyed it. And then kind of the deal was, it was like, you know, they didn't pay me for any of it. Right. But it was like, I was gaining experience. They were answering all my questions, teaching me stuff. I had so many people that helped me out in that time. And I was just doing it as like a side thing that I really liked. And so I ended up, I had like a uh, GI Bill benefit I hadn't used. I'd already been to college. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to school and learn about something I want to learn about. So I did like an online program in beef cattle production and just kept learning about stuff and kept enjoying it. And so when Tim sold that company, um, you know, he basically, we were chatting one day and And he was like, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to stay on with these guys? And I was like, no, I'm not working for like a big corporate. Right. I was already like kind of ready to do something different anyway. And I'd been doing this cattle thing like enough where I was really looking at, you know, potentially trying to do something on my own or with some partners that I'd kind of like made along the way and friends and whatnot. And he said, well, man, that sounds like super interesting. Uh, You know, we're really interested in investing back like into Montana you know, this is something we've always wanted to do and had interest in, but never really had the, you know, capacity, um, both from the, um, you know, like the capital capacity as well as the experience, um, capacity. So basically him and his brother and I sat down and they were like, Hey, this is something we're interested in doing. I probably had through some of these different lease things I'd done and different things that, you know, had really made enough mistakes along the way to kind of go like, you know, Hey, I, I think I can put this thing together. And um, we started lining out kind of what that would look like. And they'd already, Tim had been looking at some different places that he was interested in. And so we really got serious about looking at those. And so basically after he sold that, um, him and his brother were, were primary, um, you know, shareholders in that Mm -hmm. business. So we came together and built this little belt cattle company concept. Um, and ultimately um, you know, they came in and, and invested, mm-hmm. you know, in that project and I came in to run it and get it off the ground. And I was probably at the point where like, and this is still probably yet to be fully determined where, um, you know, I had enough experience to get us going. I was either probably going to get us in like a lot of trouble really fast, or I was going to get it together and, yeah. and make it happen. And fortunately for me, like I said, I had some people, um, one of our business partners um Turk Stovall who's like multi-generational rancher um out of South of Billings and just like world of knowledge of in cattle and beef production and all these other things um was a mutual friend uh Jim McCrae had, had introduced us and I don't know if in the beginning Turk just kind of like got a kick out of like what we were trying to do uh, you know I don't know I'd have to ask if like he took it even that seriously in the beginning right. but you know, now we're business partners on a feed yard, we run cattle together and it's really gone from obviously still somebody that I rely on, like heavily from a knowledge perspective at times, but it's really gone on something that like went from me kind of always like calling in, like asking like for advice or help to like now us working together. Right. And it's been awesome. Um, and so that is basically how we, we started out and we took three properties that, um, had been split up at some point in history and basically bought those three, put them back together, and then have basically strategically grown that um, through leases, through other, you know, deeded purchases. And our goal in the beginning, which we were super kind of naive in how we were going to get there, but our goal was always to do 100% Montana raise, start to finish, you know, branded beef company, right? So right. we started out as a cow-calf operation. We didn't have any idea how long it was going to take to get there what that was actually going to look like, like logistically land management wise, the land that we bought was in like various states of, um, deferred maintenance, I guess is the best way to put it. But, you know, building grazing plans that, you know, that, that work to run that as one place versus three separate places. There was a ton of maintenance that had to happen right off the bat to even get that kind of, you know, back into a, a more production ag ready, place right that is just slowly and continues to happen now um but our goal from the very beginning and we started this in 2019 around the time you guys did Mm -hmm. right and then covid started right away and that was really the first time that i think like as a country we started to see these like cracks in the food system yep where you know not so much here in montana and, and again if you hunted or you knew local ranchers like you had access to to you know Pretty much the same thing you did before that. But friends of mine that lived in cities were like, man, it's crazy. We there's go empty to empty shelves. Empty yeah. shelves. And for the first time, again, the complacency of Americans kind of was like, whoa, what do you mean? Right. We can't get access to food. What do you mean? There's no steak on the shelf. Like, And and we were at that time looking at, you know, you see all these cattle in Montana, and you wonder why like that was happening here too. And ultimately, like when you look at and you break down kind of the beef production and the food system as a whole, you realize that, you know, different types of cattle fit into different buckets along that way. Yeah. And traditionally, Montana is like very much like a cow-calf producing state. But then those calves would generally get bought. And it's like a cattle performance state, right? It's mm-hmm. it's we, are, we have excellent genetics up north here. Um, the cattle that get produced here, people love them you know, in different places. But generally, those cattle would leave the state. They'd get fed someplace else, processed someplace else, and then, you know, kind of put out into into national, um, you know, basically beef systems. And there's nothing wrong with that system. But we started to kind of ask, like, well, how come that doesn't happen more here on kind of a sustainable, scalable level? And during that time and seeing those – like, if COVID hadn't happened, I wonder – if we would have just kept down more the kind of the traditional path of just going like, Hey, we'll be cow calf producers with maybe some yearlings or something. But that really started to highlight to us from a business that, that, you know, putting high quality nutrient dense protein in the form of beef back into our community and into our state was something that just like really resonated with us. Like, you know how it is as a hunter, or if you know, small or you're buying steers from, um, you know, out of 4-H programs, there's a connection to where that food came right, from. Right. And there's a feeling of like community of for the people who raised that. And I think we've lost that as a country. Like most people had a tie to agriculture or, you know, as we get generations away from like the your great-great-grandfather and your grandfather and-, and The and, local butcher shop. Yeah, and that knife being passed down to you, right? And seeing that and feeling that connection and knowing what it takes to put beef- or, or any high-quality food on a plate has been lost. And people now go to Walmart, they buy this steak, and there's there's no feeling there. There's no anything. So when you eat it or you throw it in the trash, it doesn't matter. Right. If you give somebody an elk tenderloin that you packed out for hours or I give somebody you know a box of beef that we produced and I know what went into it and who was there, and yep. you hope that that connection gets passed on because it makes the value of that... Um, you know, of that experience deeper.
1: Yeah, we bought the neighbor's 4-H steer this year, uh, and we just had my dad's 69th birthday party and a bunch of family over for that the other night, and we told everyone around the dinner table, like, it's literally the fence line right there. On the other side of the fence, that steer was raised right there. And there's also a couple people in this community eating the steers that my kids raised and the hog that my kids raised for 4-H this year in the community eating theirs. And I guarantee you they're sitting around the table saying, hey, this is Macy's hog or this is Sadie's steer. You know, so it definitely adds a connection and it makes it feel more special. And there's just a cool feeling knowing that, you know, in a roundabout way, not really roundabout, in a direct way, we're supporting the neighbor.
0: Yep. Y- and knowing know. who and where your food comes from has definitely been lost. And that was really highlighted for us. Um, you know, when we started Little Belt Cattle Company and Tim and I were sitting down and kind of going like, Where are we going to go with this, you know, and, and what's, how are we going to build a, you don't see a lot of people building a startup ranch in 2020. No, no, you
1: kind of have to be born into, I mean, it's, it's a bit unfortunate, but you know, if I'm a knife maker and I raise a kid that just loves ranching, like it's going to be a really tough for that kid to ever own his own ranch. Yeah, it is. It's become, it's big money. Real estate in Montana is huge money. Yep um most of that ground is bought up by rich people maybe leased back to somebody that wants to run a ranch yep. but like if you're not born into it
0: <clears throat> if you're not born into it there is absolutely a feeling like if you're not born into it it's not for you which right. personally like I wasn't born into it so I don't feel that way and I and I there's a couple points there the the barrier of entries to get into ranching are are huge, right? Mm-hmm. Number one, the capital intensity that it takes to mm-hmm. get started is enormous. Most right. people don't have the capacity in themselves, I didn't, and have to go outside um and and find, you know, partners and or investors or whatever right. to, to get that going. Um, number two, there's a huge experience barrier of entry. Sure. Very much like lineman work or military that you know, there is. Yeah, a, you're,
1: you're part veterinarian, you're part uh, uh, biologist with the land, with the with the grazing. Um, there's so much business behind it yep. of, of planning your finances and being able to to take the money that you've got, work through the rest of the year, and and you're very likely going to have to borrow some money. So, yeah, you know, I, there's just so much that there's goes there's so into much
0: that. to it. And again, like looking at that list as a whole, it could be like extremely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, probably for us, like not knowing some of those things going in that you learn along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But very much like lineman work or military, like, like I don't love when people are like, Oh, it's just a lifestyle because it's not. And when you look at the people who've done it for a long time, these are professionals. These are their career. This is their business. The skill sets that they've obtained over a long period of time where they make it look easy are extremely challenging. Yeah. And I hate when I actually hate when people go like, oh, it's just a lifestyle, because it's not. It's a business and it's a critical business, in my opinion. Like I say all the time, like food security is national security. The same way that like 1% of the population provides the defense of this country, 1% of the population provides the food for this country. Yep. The same way that of that 1%, it's like a very small percentage of people that provide direct combat action to defend this company, right. country country it's like less than 1% are direct food producers for this country, right? So it's this small group of people that's providing this huge service and there's lifestyle components to that career path, mm-hmm. but it is not a lifestyle. Right. There is lifestyle things that you have to be willing to sacrifice. Right. But like, same way, like if you're just doing it to tell people that, you know, you're a special operations person or you're a lineman, if you don't love doing that job right. or you're not going to make it through the challenging times. If the only reason you want to be a seal is to tell girls at the bar, you're a seal. You're not going to make it through hell week. Right. If you truly want to do that job, you'll do what it takes to get there. Right. And that's been my attitude. Like I really wanted to be in production agriculture and beef cattle production specifically. Like that was my goal and whatever it took for me to get there. And again, back to that, like new guy attitude, I still, like, I will ride up to somebody and be like, man, you are really good at this and I suck. What am I doing wrong? Right. Now, if I pretended I knew everything, like, they're probably not going to give me the advice. But you're right. You have the, the skill sets that you have to. It's a tough business.
1: There's so much strategy involved in it. Um, and there are so many contingencies you have to think about, um, y- y- you know, uh, whether it's animals getting sick, whether it's, it's, it's you know, not getting enough rain, not having enough grass to grow. So then you have to buy hay, but then what's the hay prices this year versus like, we have tons of grass. How much hay can we sell that we produce? Like, um, and, and it goes on and on and on. And, and then there's so much maintenance that's, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's fences, equipment, it's non, it it never ends.
0: And there's so much out of your control, right? So like you're dealing with a business that's, that's tied directly to mother nature, and,
1: and also there's no actual set, uh, like when you're in the military, you're a lineman, you know exactly what you're getting paid. Um, there's actually no set price. No. Uh, you, you, you actually don't know what the cattle prices are going to be next fall. So a lot of the assumptions that you build your business off of, and that's what people don't understand, is that uh, you could have, like cattle prices right now are pretty good, right? They're great, yep. Uh, so you could base all of your decisions off of these prices today for next year and you could win big time or you could literally lose your rent.
0: And like we were talking about when, you know, as you do these projections, right. And you go like, Hey, in X amount of time, like where are we going to be? And how are we going to base that off of sales and the growth? And you could do that. But like for us, it's a, it's such a fluctuating market Mm -hmm. that even if you look at it from the short time that we've been doing it, um, the, the, the ups and downs, and what drives those and, and why um, makes it very hard to predict what the future is going to look like. And that's yeah. something that like, I look at these guys who've been doing this for five, six generations and you know, you want to talk about sustainability. Like they, if they weren't sustainable, they wouldn't be in business. Right. right. And they've gotten to see kind of what those um, you know, everybody remembers the, the, the tough times and it reminds you during the good times to, to, you know, you yeah, plan wisely. Save for a rainy day. Yeah, and you know it's just it, it's such an interesting thing when you look at it. Like for us, we are we are literally like taking calves from like hitting the ground all the way through putting them on people's so, place. So
1: you said you own you own a feedlot now. We do. Yep. Okay. So yep. you guys are now not just shipping the cows or the the steers away to get fed out, but you guys are actually taking. And feeding them out.
0: Correct. Yep. So we partnered on a on a feed yard um, that had been in business for, you know, a, a long time, just east of Billings. And it's a commercial finishing yard, basically, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, a more traditional grow yard like you see here in Montana. But yeah, we are finishing our cattle there. So like literally the, everything is happening a hundred percent here in Montana. We're trying to source, you know, as much feed as we can for the feed yard locally um,
1: what about getting, uh, the butchering process, butchering is happening
0: in Montana as well, which uh, was one of the biggest bottlenecks that we faced in the very beginning where you think you can just go like, Oh yeah, we want to process cattle here. Well, when processors are two years out or not taking any new customers,
1: yeah, we're seeing that here.
0: What? Yeah. yeah. So what do you do if you're a new business?
1: Right. And there's actually laws against you processing your own and selling it. There's it, FDA laws. Correct.
0: So yeah. there's us. Yes. And, and there's USDA approved plants that allow you to do certain things from shipping beef over state lines to where you can sell and how you can sell. And, um, you know, for us, we, we, we kind of started out, um, our, our goal has always been putting the highest quality beef back into the state and into our local communities. Right. And through doing that, um, we also were like looking at it as a business, like man, it'd be great to also do like a direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of, as we actually over a couple of years, were able to get to the point where we were processing cattle um, at a volume and scale that that kind of allowed us to to really go go down those roads, which took a long time because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, it can be twenty four months right before you if you take them through that whole process.
1: Yeah, calf like with our kids is four H steers, calf's born in February. Or March, April, wherever, whenever people do their calving. And then my kids are buying their project in uh, we're going this coming weekend to yep. go buy a steer, so October. And then they have to feed that steer out all the way until next August. Yep. Um, so that's a it's an eighteen month process. Yep. And and that doesn't include like my boy, he bred his own cow. So that process actually started nine nine, ten months Correct. before that. So uh, now he's, he's AI in his cow. Then he's t- putting her on a cleanup bowl. I love it. You know, all the way through. Then that calf is being born, you know, February, March, whatever. Um, You know, so to your point, it goes from an 18-month process if you're just buying a calf to a 24-month process. It's 24
0: months basically to where you put a dollar in in the investment pool to where you get anything out. That's yeah. a long time. With no
1: idea what the price will be Correct. at the end of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so... All you can do is like the best job you can.
1: Which in the last twenty four months, uh, you know, everybody can be like, "Oh, cattle prices are great right now. Ranchers are doing really well." Well, we we've never seen higher hay prices than last year. Uh, so the, in in the last twenty four months, yeah. the, the hay prices were you know it's three hundred dollars a ton for our me. input
0: costs went up um, basically from in twenty twenty one forty percent. Yeah input cost to feed and maintain cattle. So you saw a lot of places, you know, not make it through. Yeah. How do you, the the cost of the end result product didn't go up 40%, but the input cost to, to keep going with no idea of where those markets were going. Um, and in that is actually a big reason why you're seeing now the prices that they are just because it's, you know, basically supply and demand of, of what's right. in the system to, to what is the demand. And so you're seeing these high prices because the, the supply numbers are are lowered, right? But that is all driven from, you know, drought slash extremely high input cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, a lot of that stuff is out of your control. And you could sit there all day and complain about it, you know, but it doesn't change the fact that how you basically are going to like run your, your operation. And, um, and you guys see it? Like, are your kid are, is your son doing like Angus? Angus, what's he doing for Black uh, yeah, yeah. Angus? Yes, nice. yep. yep. And
1: it. and it's interesting because uh, my kids have actually seen it, 4H has been so good for them because they've actually seen now that the policies in our government and a lot of the decisions that are made directly reflect and affect uh, the end product of the steak, the package of steaks laying in on the shelf. And for example. When my oldest daughter, who's 19, started 4-H when she was, you know, 9 or 10, uh, you know, she was buying bags of feed back then for, when it was on sale, it was around eight ninety nine dollars a bag. Uh, I want to say this year we were paying somewhere around nineteen ninety nine a bag, yep. $20 a bag for feed. And that wasn't the high-end feed. There's feed out there that's $30, $32 a bag. Uh, and my kids this year, uh, this last year, when we because we buy it a ton at a time we'll buy a pallet of feed 40 bags uh they were buying their feed and they're like dad this is insane last year last year they were paying you know 13 14 dollars then it's 18 19 this year like just in a couple years it's gone up so much Mm -hmm. and these are 12 15 16 year old kids that are commenting to me like holy shit dad and I was like, yeah. And this is an example, kids, of like when, when certain things happen and certain situations happen with our government, uh, certain rules, regulations, whatever, whatever these circumstances are that drive up the prices, now you need more money for your steer to make money. Yep. Well, what that's going to mean is the person that buys it is going to have to pay more, which is going to mean those stakes at the end of the day, that, that food on their plate is going to cost those people more money. Like, that all trickles downstream. 100%. You know, and it's so good for kids to see. But so many people leave their day job, and they stop at the store on the way home, and they, they buy a little thing of groceries, and they just don't think about everything that happened in the last two and a half to three years that drove that particular meal that they just bought up in price.
0: Yeah, and if you... A hundred percent. And you, so like they're seeing that happen on a smaller scale. Imagine you're feeding thousands of cattle at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and you look at these, those, those input costs incrementally, like where that puts you in just.
1: Yeah. How many tons of feed, how many tons of hay do you feed a day in December?
0: Uh, it just depends on like the age class. So we'd be like, you know, you're somewhere around 30 pounds per head per day. Right. Um, something like that, depending on the weather that's, that's pretty average. I'd yeah, say but times then,
1: a couple thousand head. If you know, I, I I know a guy in Eastern Montana that has 10,000 mother cows. Yeah. I mean that, I mean,
0: so you figure right there, I mean, you take, you know, 30 pounds times 10,000, that's what you're feeding a day. Yep. And then you take that at, you know, where you go from one year, it's 90 bucks a ton to 300 a ton. Right. But the cost of steak in, in, it would get to the point where it would be unaffordable, unattainable.
1: Well, and what a lot of people also don't understand is is there's there's this middleman process between the actual rancher and the sale and the actual stake in the store. Correct. You know, the packing houses and a bunch of the bullshit that happens where it's not when you start figuring out and you're doing the math in your head in the store per pound of meat and you start thinking about how many pounds of steer weighs on the hook. That doesn't actually equate because there's a middleman in there sucking up a ton of the profits.
0: You're absolutely right. So what generally what happens, you know, for folks that that aren't super familiar with with the just beef production is you've got cow calf operations that produce calves. Those calves get bought by somebody else and go into like what we would call a yearling or or feeder program. Those go then to a feed yard to be finished. Those then get sold to, you know, a, a large packing plant that processes them. And then they go into these different programs out of there. So there's phase lines you know, along the way that everybody's making you know, their incremental margin on, which is not that big of a margin. Right. But it's a very incremental, each phase line has a different you know, point of sale. And at that point of sale, whoever's managing that particular age class is making you know, their margin ultimately. So what we did and what our goal was was to build a sustainable local supply chain of start to finish Montana beef. So, you know, we looked at that whole process across the board and we don't so we basically own the process all the way through up until the processor. We work with a processor that we don't have any involvement as far mm-hmm. as like business-wise in other than we're a customer of theirs and they they slaughter and process those, you know, those cattle for us. It's full 100% USDA approved plant, so we basically can sell commercially um you know, really wherever uh, we want and so as we really like looked at it from our business perspective is is we you know we kind of had this like direct-to-consumer model which which involved local people being able to order and pick up we started to look at this direct-to-consumer e-commerce model which I'll talk about in a second and then we had this kind of hybrid which I call like direct-to-wholesale and that is selling beef directly to local restaurants and um, in working with those chefs and work with these restaurants to provide them what we think is probably the highest quality, you know, beef that they're going to be able to get versus buying from these large national right. programs. And there's been a huge amount of support from, from a number of those places to, to buying local. And um, there's a number of benefits, but they also have to be committed to like, we can't do it as cheap right. as, as these super big guys can. And, it's been awesome to work with the partners we have that have supported us and supported buying local. And it's really cool because they take the products we produce and they then put their expertise on it. So you go to some of these restaurants and they're like, they're making us look good. Yeah. You know, we're giving them the best beef and they're cooking it to the best. Cause I can make you the best beef in the world. And if you promptly go home and burn it, you can be like, man, that wasn't that good. Right? Like I can control it up to a certain point where working with these restaurants and these chefs has actually like added another layer of control for us because we're very selective about who we work with, and we know that those people are representing us and those cattle and our product well.
1: As a consumer, too, you can put pressure on your local restaurants to actually try to use local beef. Correct. I mean, we had a burger literally last night coming home from Big Fork from my, uh, or no, two nights ago from Big Fork from my boys' football game. We had a burger at, a, at the Raven restaurant up on Flathead Lake, and it says right in there it's Mannix Beef. Yep. Man- Mannix is around. Yeah, I know yep. Lando, Where I yep. grew up. Uh, you know, Manix beef is, you know, pretty popular around Western Montana because yep. they're a ranch that's within an hour of here. For, and I know
0: Cole and like what he's doing is awesome. Yep. Um, and him and I talk a lot about, you know, um, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there doing it. So there is a lot of mm-hmm. capacity for people, but you have to have that support and they have to understand that local places doing it start to finish, you know, aren't going to be able necessarily to compete. It'd be like if somebody said to you, hey, how come your prices aren't the same as the pocket knife I get at Walmart? Right. And you go, well, the process that it takes for us to do this. Right. It's number one, superior product. Number two, the process that we can't compete with products coming out of China. Right. Right.
1: But by buying our stuff, we're also supporting the local softball team and we're sponsoring this local program. And that one, we just got a letter this morning thanking us for a knife that we donated for uh, a sheriff in Kalispell that had gotten shot in the line of duty. And they, they auctioned it off and it brought a bunch of money. And that's not that isn't going to happen from big national companies. Like, no. So so it's those small ranches. It's the Mannixes around the Ovando. It's the yep. you guys over around 2DOT where you're you're donating, you're going to local benefits and supporting your community and you're hiring people. And that's that
0: touch point, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's making the connection back again to like who and where your food comes from, knowing the people, mm-hmm. knowing where the ranch is, right? There's something cool about that that you don't get without that and something we've tried to do is like build that touch point you know as much as we can so that people have a better understanding of what it takes to to do what we're doing and you know working with these different restaurants and stuff and a lot of people get it right and and they will support it and they've been awesome about it but you have to find the right partners in that um well and then, and
1: needing to find the meat cutting facilities i mean around here we have to literally schedule a steer to be killed Six months in advance. Yeah, so imagine you're trying to do that
0: on, you know, two hundred and fifty steers a year or more. I I
1: think that's why some of these butcher shops around here have gotten so far backed up is some of what you're talking about and what you're doing, more and more people are trying to do and they're sending more stuff locally. Yep. But it's overwhelmed the yeah, these three small or four plants, butcher shops, that, yeah. they, they don't have the capacity.
0: And then you look at it from like a larger, you know, kind of scalability perspective, right? Like you could probably do it cheaper someplace else, larger, out of state. Right. Um, but then if you're not supporting those, there there's a there's a local supply chain that everybody kind of has to help, you know, support each other through because if we don't process beef at local processors here in Montana – and we go out of state with those. Then there's a possibility that those guys go out of business. Then there's you know, right? We actually the feed yard that that um, we're partnered on is that you see all these these processing plants opening up on a on a medium to smaller scale. And so nobody had really looked at the where are the cattle going to come from? You know, the we do a grass fed grain finish, but where if you're looking for fat cattle coming out of feed yards to then go into those processing plants, to be killed, to go into, you know, beef programs. Where are those cattle going to come out of? So we, and we looked at the potential of, of maybe partnering on a, on a processing plant. But that was not what we wanted to do. We wanted to be excellent at the livestock side of things and let somebody else that's really great on the processing side do that. But anyway, our model on the feed yard was actually providing a regional commercial finishing yard that people could finish cattle in regionally to then supply into regional processing plants. Right. If you miss any link in the chain along the way, it breaks the chain. Right. And so there's a little bit of like helping, you know, you're helping each other in the, you know, and, and even people that you potentially see as like a competitor where I just, I'm under the, you know, I think from like a local food production standpoint that like the rising tide raises all boats, there's enough, opportunity for everybody and everybody's product is a little different, right? Everybody's story is a little bit different. And there's something that like I might do that resonates with somebody. And there's something that somebody else might do that resonates with somebody else, which is awesome. As long as they're buying local, like, you know, product.
1: And that's where it really, truly actually starts with the consumer. If, if, if you can go shop at a local butcher shop and buy meat from them, that begins that process, right? If, the, the busier, the more meat that they sell, the more they're going to justify being able to hire more people to butcher more animals to potentially add on to their building or buy a bigger building, which is then going to, in turn, force them to need to buy more cattle from the feed yard. Um,
0: yep, the capacity butcher. goes up. Yeah, it, yeah. It,
1: but it starts all with the demand from the consumer.
0: 100%. And, it, and sometimes I think the consumer thinks, like, if you, again, totally my opinion, um, and... Just take it for that. But if you walk down Bozeman, it's Main Street, right? And you look at all these nice, fancy restaurants and things. I think most of the tourists and most of the people eating there think that they're eating some sort of local product, right? right. Montana's known for cattle, cowboys, et cetera. We got to be eating Montana beef. Well, in actuality, you know, for a lot of those places, the Cisco truck just makes it stop along the way. And, like, you're right. getting the same. And I think that there's a competitive advantage, and the people we work with believe that as well, there's a competitive advantage to having local high quality product and, but it's hard from, you know, all those guys have pretty much been burned by like other local guys that are trying right. to do that because to keep a consistent product over 12 months. It's just hard to do. Um, and to keep consistency in your quality and your like ability to deliver at a restaurant, you can't miss a delivery and go, Hey, sorry, we don't have any steaks tonight. Right. right? My guy didn't bring them, Right. Um, And so, yeah,
1: and there's these off times of years where it's not, it's not normally the time for butchering cattle or raising, you know, there, there has to be a place where this meat store, it's frozen. And that's the other challenge too, for you guys is like the direct to consumer thing. It, it's frustrating because like we would love to be able to buy, I mean, we're actually looking for a program that we have here at MKC to reward our, our best customers. Yep we have one of our stages in our program that we're going to roll out next month. We're going to be sending beef out to some of our top customers. Yep. Um, but it's actually harder than you would think. We wanted to f- ship Montana-raised beef. But I want to just be able to call somebody up and say, hey, I got 10 customers. I want to send them, you know, T-bones and whatever, some sirloins or whatever. Uh, I want to send them 50, 40 pounds each of meat some steaks, whatever. And I want you guys to cut up and ship it out. Yep. And it's actually harder to find those people than you would think because there are regulations involved and, and to be able to keep a supply of beef year round frozen, like that's a whole nother level of commitment.
0: And if you think about it, like, um, again, like in Montana, right, there's a, there's a set calving window that most people fall into. And it's not that big. It's like January on the early end, you know, Let's just April, yeah. yeah, Let's call it like mid June ish on the latest. Yeah. So in that period, all those calves hit the ground, right? And then that's a certain number to to span those out. So that means they're all going to be ready, you know, from your start date to that end date. They will all be, you know, at twenty four months within that same block of time. Twenty four months later, right? So how do you stretch that out? And there's ways to do it. And and again, we could talk about beef cattle production for a whole nother right hours i won't get all the way into it but there's a way to do that but you know then it becomes like do you process all those at once and put them in a freezer and then work through that do you do a certain number a week back to the processors if they're not processing every week how do they keep a staff right right and again like we actually try with our processor to give them like weekly business which adds logistical problems for me and may not be the best business decision but if they're it's definitely business. not
1: efficient for you to haul cows down every week. Or, no, or I haul. could do it like
0: once a month, but then what if they can't keep employees and then, the sh- then they close down and then we don't have access to them anymore, right. right? So back to kind of like having to like work together, um, which I think is cool. It's like American companies like building and growing like, again, this supply chain together and everybody's responsible for, for their piece. But again, if that link goes away, it, it goes upstream and downstream. And so, like, for what you guys want to do, like, that's actually something we could probably do for you. But um, so we actually started going down this direct-to-consumer e-commerce. That was our, like, main thing. We were like, hey, you know, we're going to build – we're going to get our marketing out there. We're going to have a customer base. And we did that. And then we started opening that up. And we could not keep up logistically with – we had the product, the the shipping perishables – you know, just the logistics of what it takes. You guys know fulfillment, how challenging that is. And for yeah. us, like we have a super small team. Um, we've got, you know, space that we store stuff, but we don't have like, it's not like we have this big supply chain line and we really, you know, it, it to say like, oh yeah, we'll just hire all these people and we'll do this and this. We didn't feel like we had, you know, had had been there long enough to like make sure that was the right way to go. Mm -hmm. So it really came down to me to make this like decision. Do we, I feel like we could do one or the other. So it was like, do we go straight direct to e-commerce and, and we focus on doing that and we go, you know, we ship everything out. Or do we focus on our state and on our community? And again, coming back to like our goals and our mission and vision of this company was to put high quality, nutrient dense beef back into our communities and on our friends and family and neighbors and visitors, and um, that's ultimately the direction that we went. So we we're not not going to do that, but we we basically I was like we have to be really good at doing that locally first. And then we'll branch out and, right. and we'll probably, honestly, like, I think it's interesting what you guys have done. I'd be curious where you like came with the idea, but where you go, we've got this many knives ready to go. Right. And they're coming out this day. And right. That's how many we got. Right. And I think from what it looks like from the outside, like that's worked really well yep. for you guys. And and I actually have thought about that from like our perspective, where you go, like, maybe you build these boxes and then you go like, Hey, we've only got so many of them. And it's something manageable that you can do with the team that you have. And then you incrementally build on that. Exactly. But our biggest thing was like, as a business, we made a, you know, a concerted effort and a choice to not only are we like born, bred, fed hundred percent of Montana. You also have to consume in Montana right now. Right. And I actually think that's kind of cool. I know it's not the greatest for like probably the number of customers that we'd like to be serving right now, Um, and we're going to get there, but we got to do this first. And again, I think like you have to be very, um, just mindful about like the, the bites you take and when you take them. Right. And we've done that and we've gotten really great feedback on our quality. We've gotten really great feedback on our consistency. I'm excited for you guys to try them, Mm -hmm. um, and see what you think. Um, you know, but I actually think it's cool. We have customers that come to Montana and they go, hey, I'm driving from, you know, Big Fork down to Yellowstone and we're going to come in to a restaurant or a market that serves your guys' stuff and we're getting a little belt steak. Do
1: you guys have a list of restaurants on your website that you guys serve?
0: Yeah, we do now. Okay. Yeah, yep. there's a list of them and primarily like Bozeman, Big Sky. Again, and that also comes out to like being able to distribute. Right. Um, we want to build and grow, but we're also, you know, again, like, I like having that touch point with our customers where we're doing our own distribution. Cause again, that's another like step in the game where somebody else is saying like, Hey, we, you know, ultimately can pay you less. And then they go to your customer and say, you've got to pay more. Right. And nothing wrong with it, but.
1: No, this, and this is a model that needs to be emulated and copied all across the country. Cause like you guys are only can only get, so big and only serve so much. And like, there's, there's obviously going to be plenty of room for you guys to grow, but like Mannixes have been trying it and been doing it. And there's other places I know that have been trying it and doing it in Wyoming and different yep. Colorado and different places. And it's, if everybody would do this uh, community sustainable, um, you know, program across the country, it would just, it would just, it would help every, it would help everyone.
0: hundred percent. And it, in, in it, There's a reason that there's the consolidation within the industry that there is. And again, it would be way too long to get into all of that, but being able to kind of break that down to more. And again, I think you get higher quality like product. There's a touch point of who and where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody does something like a little bit different. And one of the things that we've worked on doing that we kind of have set up now from just like a business scalability perspective is that let's say I can only produce X amount of calves a year based on the number of mother cows that we have. We've kind of built out this like um, program to where we could buy and source verify calves from other really good producers from them at a premium. So if you sell your calves in the fall and I know you're a great producer and you produce great calves, I could come in the fall and buy those from you at a premium higher than you would get on like a large scale market. And we could put those into our program and, you know, take them through a, a, whether they're grass steers going into the feed yard or, or right. whatever size they're at and come back to you. And that's a way for us then to actually help other local Montana yeah, ranchers. neighbors. Correct. Yeah. Get a better, because you watch how hard these folks work. You watch what goes into it and you watch their, you know, they're tied to whatever that commodity market is. And we've got beef programs because we sell a lot of livestock still as well. You know, the the branded beef company is one enter you know enterprise of the company, but we sell a lot of live. We still sell calves. We sell bred cattle. We sell you know the the livestock component of our business is still the main part of our business. I mean, we are 100 a working ranch, and we're building out this branded beef line. Um, as one of our enterprises. And I think today with any startup, you have to have like multiple enterprises that collectively, right? you know, and for us as a, you know, like like we've had to do some things that are probably different than, than some places that are like, well, why would you do that? And you're like, well, we need to have some sort of like steady revenue. So when people buy hats and sweatshirts and t-shirts and, you know, that helps us big time. And that is supporting us getting closer to our goal to be able to providing them, you know, if they don't live in Montana, you know, beef at some point. Right. And when you, when you look at all of those like different components that go into it, um, producers should be paid for that. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. We're hopeful in that if we could build a good enough, you know, brand in business that creates the, the demand that it actually like kind of out, does the supply that we personally have in our own system to where we could start buying. And we've, we've actually, we, we did that a little bit this year with um, Montana stock growers has this, it's a cattle drive program that raises money for um, Montana stock growers where local ranches donate a steer. We actually finish those steers at our feed yard and then little belt cattle company bought a handful of those steers from, from, you know, ranches that we knew, um, produce cattle in a way that, that we think is the, the uh, in line with our vision. And, and we, we bought those steers and put those into our system and it was like super rewarding. And back to like what you guys do community wise. I mean, we just did a, um, the, the Hittleman scholarship at MSU is a scholarship for uh, rural um, Native American and basically I, I, I disadvantaged people within the state of Montana mm-hmm. It's an amazing program, and so we donated um, some stuff into that program, which I had no idea how well it was going to do. It's a testament, though, to what people think of—I guess us in our business. We raised sixty-three thousand dollars for that program. That's fifteen kids. They told us that could go to college on a scholarship from our local community, basically with with uh, selling beef and and basically supplying beef um, as part of a, a, basically a package, right? We support Montana stock rowers. Um, we support, you know, buying, you know, steers from 4-H. Um, we support, you know, local schools. We support putting in one of the things that we did is we basically have built like a premium, you know, kind of product, right. In our higher end cuts, we started this food truck to be able to take grind more of like a middle market meat, and provide that at a price point that we think is like super reasonable. And we've run that food truck all summer. One, it's a great way for us to get through some grind that that you end up with a lot of. But number two, it's like a family like mine can go there. A family like yours can go there. It is the exact same beef that's coming off of our, right. you know. Just um, not the premium cuts. Prime ribeyes. Yeah. It's trimmed from all of those. Right. Going into this burger program that isn't a specific grind program. So you are getting the same high quality nutrient dense protein right if you eat one of our ribeyes or you get one of our packs of grind yeah and again i'm super proud to put that like in front of my kids i'm super proud to put that in front of my neighbors i love it when people give us feedback like man the the dining experience that i had eating one of your guys' steaks here was was awesome and following along like what you guys have done from the beginning and again developing that touch point mm-hmm sitting here talking about it and kind of educating customers on like what it takes to get from point a to point B. Right. Um, I mean, what do you guys feel like in your business? I because I, I feel like your guys' marketing is really good developing like, like people know the care in what it takes for you guys in just your story. So when they buy one of your knives, it's more special than just going down and, and grabbing something.
1: Yeah, no, we hope, we absolutely hope that it, means more and that they actually buy it with the, the intention of passing it down and that it has more meaning. And the fact that it's why we highlight our employees on our, uh, like our, our weekly vlogs that Henry shoots here. Um, It's, it's why we actually try and put our employees on camera and put them out there because we actually want our customers to know who's working on their knives and see that it's not just, you know, it's not just me anymore it's all these other people, but it's not just faceless people yep that they're helping you know Melissa and Travis and Tristan and you know all these guys Dylan it right it goes all the way through that there's all these families that are that are being helped now by uh by the support that people are you know showing when they buy our knives, yep so yeah, no it means it means a ton and i and i I think there's been obviously a huge uh uh, surge in in people that actually care. I mean, it's kind of the buzzword these days of you know buying local, um, you know farmers farmers markets and you know community gardens and you know I've I've always thought and I've always wondered why ranchers can't get all together and build like a co op where you know they build their own damn packing house and ranches are potentially a member of of something where they all help fund and collectively own their own freaking packing Mm -hmm. house. And, uh, you know, where that meat can actually get processed right here in our own state. And, and if every state had co-ops of packing houses, you know, you guys don't, you guys could grow an amazing, huge company and never ship beef out of the state. It could just like, why can't, our Montana ranchers feed our Montana families, yeah, why and I think can't, they're why getting can't that. Wyoming's feed theirs? Yeah, and, and I think it's definitely, it's definitely improving. I mean, it is, and there's improving. people
0: doing that, right? Like um, you mentioned, you know, Manix is what they're doing with like the the old salt model. I think is fantastic, and um, it's happening. But just to for just what it takes to do that, and like again, back to like you know, just the capital, and then mm-hmm. it's a it's a different skill set. Um, but it is, and I'm with you, like if you had that happening, then you would see alternatives to, you know, the consolidation of kind of the big four that everybody hears about. Um, and and the only
1: way it's going to happen is for consumers to demand, to demand it, to, 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 and when I say demand, it it means to start buying that, start buying
0: that way, asking for it. Um, you know, but again, I think people care about the quality that they're getting, whether it's in, you know our beef or your knives. And like one thing we do, and I think it's cool. I don't know what you'll think. You can tell me. So like totally just stealing from like kind of the seal team. um, uh, I guess um, like prize model or whatever, you know, in the military, they give you these different things They're they're, they're not really worth, you know, anything from the military perspective, other than it's a status symbol of where you're kind of at, right? You get a Brown t-shirt out there, week you get a trident pin after you've completed SQT, you get these different things. And all it basically says is that like, you've gotten to this level. And I think about like, how do you encourage people to be like, you know, kind of the ultimate team players and different things. And so something that we started doing and um, we still do is, we give your knives to people at our company who have gone like above and beyond what their kind of role or job is. And Mm -hmm. usually it's something that um, has like positive impact on people, you know, outside of themselves. Sure. And I don't give them to everybody. And what I do is I give them to people basically with a note saying kind of why they got it. And, and it's been cool because, you can see the people that have them and the people that don't. And some people never get them. Wow. And it's kind of a cool thing because the people that have them. That's really um, cool. They, you know, everybody, they don't know maybe exactly what they did to get it, but they saw that that person has stepped up yeah. at some point. Um, and it's been really cool. And it's something that's super special that has like huge value, but also has like kind of significance. Cause I mean, well, have, just cause you work for us and I don't care what your job is or what level you're at. Like if you don't actually earn it, you're not getting one back right. to what we talked about it's a meritocracy it's a meritocracy and it's a earned thing coming from that you you could go out and buy one and and like we had a guy like kind of build these cowboy sheaths um so you can go out and buy one and you can wear it but like people would know that's not the one that was given right, and right. and it's been really fun because i think the people who've got them there's like a big sense of pride that's just like cool. you get a brown t-shirt and you go like it's just a t-shirt but it means more and i hope it means more Um, to our guys, but like, that's something where, again, like they know that what they're getting is something that's like special and can be passed down. And that comes from what you guys have done. And again, like, I love this, like watching Montana companies do amazing things here in the state and what you're seeing from just like the hardworking people that, that are here, um, and the companies that are being built here now, it's just something I'm like super proud to be part of that community of just you know Montana based businesses
1: no it's it's really cool and I I appreciate that story that's really cool and I yeah I have a a ton of pride in what we're doing here and we're you know I was actually telling a friend of mine yesterday he's like well geez how big do you want to get I'm like well we it doesn't it's not a dollar amount to me it's how much of the process have we brought in-house and how much are we still not quite doing in-house and we're doing it potentially in another state. And to me, it's about the growth through the job creation. And I, I want to do every single process all the way through the, the whole entire thing here, which is going to mean several hundred jobs, yep. you know, but we have to be incremental. It's, it's no different than what you're doing right now. Like, yeah, I'm sure you'd be loved to ship. You'd love to ship beef all over the, all over the country, um, but it's an incremental build. You have to choose your battles. Um, you know, I kind of equate it to like I've, I've said the last few years. I felt like we're kind of running from a forest fire, and we just are spraying water on what's burning us the hottest.
0: Yeah,
1: and you can't. It you can't put the whole forest fire out, um, but you just got to keep it off of you and not let it consume. And you got to like
0: prioritize like what can we do right the best that we can do right now. Yeah. And because again, we could try to do all these different things, but then you know, similar to like you know, again, back to military stuff is there is that point of your, your quality can potentially get diminished by your quantity. Right. And I don't want to be shipping so many boxes to where our quality starts to slip just to fill orders. I'd rather fill a small number of, of orders on a weekly basis and do that really well. And then add the next layer and 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 learn how to scale it. Correct. And then when you go, Hey, we're there, you know, and, and you and I, you know, this, and we talked about it a little bit before, like there's that Kind of imaginary like teeter totter where there's either like too much work and not enough people, or you bring in all these people and then you don't have enough work. Right. It's and kind it's, of
1: the chicken or the egg. Yeah. You know, it's like, gosh, you don't know what, you know, do, do you build it first, you know, do you, or do you run yourself basically completely out of capacity and yeah. then build it? And it's just, it's a challenge, but it's, that's the exciting part of it. It's what drives us to, to keep doing this stuff. And it also shows other people it's possible. in in their areas or you know might be a rancher in Wyoming that sees what you're doing and starts emulating it or it could be another knife company or it could be somebody with a passion in whatever it is that they're doing that's like god dang this guy freaking quit the navy seals and went and you know did this like I can do that and And it shows like what
0: what I think what both of us are doing is that you have like something you want to do it's like you'd be better off to go try go do it go try it right and you'd be better off for it not working out than not I always
1: knew I would regret if I look back, because I talked about this for years, but if I look back when I was 60 and decided it was too late, I knew I'd always regret not giving it a shot. Yeah. You know, so. There's
0: nothing worse than not giving it the shot and not knowing. I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. right? Right. And I think there's so many people now that just go like, oh, when I get this, I'll do it. When I'm, when I, you know, when I have this much money in the bank account, I'll do it. And then all of a sudden it gets to the point where like, it just never happens. Right. And, you know, I don't personally live that way. Um, I, I I think one of the things, somebody was asking me the other day, like, what, um, you know, just kind of like, whatever, like, like, rewarding or, or kind of impact. And I think there's two things, like, number one, anybody that's, like, interested in potentially like getting into agriculture production, agriculture, ranching, it is a doable thing. You've got to be committed to, like, what that's going to look like and what it's going to take and what the reality of that may look like, but we've got a bunch of guys, like we started doing this thing, um, trying to help more veterans uh, get introduced to it. And, you know, we've got some good success stories and we've got some like complete failures right. and there is a path forward there though, right? Like there's a path to kind of where whatever the thing is that you want to do. And I think like being able to kind of chart that out, but the biggest thing about it is you got to start and you got to start somewhere right. and you're never going to get, anywhere if you don't like start at it you know and
1: yeah and and people need to also understand that it's it's a it's a multi-year building process like yeah. n- none of the stuff's just it's not you're not going to win the lottery and it's not going to strike overnight
0: yeah you know? i mean i think people could look at at you know any business i think i think people sometimes look and go like man look how look where these guys are at like right now but they didn't see when right. i when i was doing it for free right they didn't see the learning process that it took they didn't see you know or you know and sometimes it's easy to see somebody, you know, kind of making their way up the mountain and forget right. the where they parked and the hike in, um, you know what I mean? And it's yeah, just, and
1: well, and they don't see the amount of challenges that are in front of you that you that you see that they don't necessarily yeah. see. you know that you, they think you've made it, but you know we feel like a lot of people think we've made it. And I was just telling the team this morning, I feel like we just now are beginning.
0: You That's know, exactly you know, so how now. I like now it. we
1: actually have a little. I I drew up this big thing on the board this morning about I feel like. Um, uh, you know, it's I, I drew up a a big blob and I said, this is like this is like a country we're trying to invade. And in the beginning we sent in some spies and we sent in a couple little people and then we built a militia and then now now I feel like we've actually built like a big base. yep, and now we're starting to expand our base and we're running these missions and we're expanding our base of operation. And we've got little places in different parts of this country, but we have no, we have debt. We definitely are not in control of it yet. Yeah. Like you've got but that foothold. We've got a great foothold yeah. and we've got a place to work from now, which means, you know, some savings in the bank yeah. and, 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 good position with some equipment and some people and some manpower. Like now, you know, I told all those guys downstairs this morning. Now I feel like I have an army. Yep. Right. The, you know, we have our people, we have, we have uh, some funding, um, and now we can start to go forward. Yep. So for all the success that it appears that we've had, I just feel like now we're just getting started.
0: Yep. Cause you have that foothold, right? You have that base, but that doesn't mean that base can't be overran 100%. at any moment. You make a right? couple mistakes, yep. you leave the back
1: door open. Yep. And you don't
0: have the and I feel the same way. It's like you're you're starting to get a foothold, but that doesn't mean that like the diligence that got you the foothold can can you can't let up diminish at yep. all. And, you know, you're probably, I mean, I I see like a lot of similarities where you got to start with like this quality product, right? You got to get a, people have to buy into the story of what, what, Mm -hmm. you know, who you are, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then you start making those little incremental like sand in the bucket, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now you're like, oh, we got some sand in there. I really don't want my bucket to get kicked over and have to restart.
1: 100%.
0: And um, I think that only comes from, you know, taking the foundation, the strong foundation, then in building right more right. on top of it.
1: So how do people fi- find you or support you?
0: Yeah, so we're on, um, you can find us online, uh, www.littlebeltcattleco.com. Find us on Instagram, at um, Little Belt Co. If you want to kind of see what we're doing, we try to put stuff up of just operationally, kind of where we're at. Um, there's a number of restaurants that are listed on our website. We are getting, we're working towards being able to get out you know, uh, outside Montana, we appreciate everybody's patience. We will get there. Um, and, and the funny thing is the volume that we're doing for like what we're, we're at right now, we're able to maintain here locally and we, we will absolutely like work to increase that. Um, and, but yeah, people can go to those, those places and we,
1: well, have, and if people can, you know, people can support you guys, even if they can't buy your beef in, you know, Florida or whatever, they can buy a hat, they can buy a shirt, and then they can also just go buy beef locally at their place totally. and support the, the the guy, the local Florida guy or Texas or Nebraska guy that's doing what you're doing. Because there, there are people around the country trying to do the same Absolutely.
0: Thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, again, the more support people have, and I think people don't realize just how, you know, again, like, small incremental support, how far that actually goes. Yeah, And I would rather see somebody go in, like you said, to a local butcher shop and buy local beef from somebody else than, you know, and get to know those folks and like get right. to know your local. And that's how it used to be is,
1: right.
0: And I think there's something really cool about that. Um, you know, and again, that's one reason like probably like you, like I'll do every step of that process from, you know, cabin stuff to, you know, whatever, you know, shipping yearlings to go into the processor, go into the feed yard. Like I'm all over the place on every one of those steps to include delivering beef. And I like dropping off box of our product, chatting with the people that are, you know, cooking it, eating it, whatever. And, you know, I think that level of like involvement doesn't, isn't just us. There's other people out there doing that and supporting those folks as well supports local buying and local production and that is ultimately how you know again back to like the food security is national security that's how we secure our food system in yep. america which go travel around the world and find me you know the the systems that we have here like even when things don't look you know like you know maybe as best as they are as good as, as they had we still have it better yep. than every everywhere else basically yep. and you know, supporting local producers, buying locally, doing all those things, buying America, pay the little bit extra for the higher quality that keeps, you know, that's important. All of that plays into the overall. And I think we have to get back to that as a country. And, you know, I know from, you know, for us and beef cattle production and, and and just beef production in general, uh, the more that that happens across the board, the better it is for everybody.
1: Yeah. And business is also, you know, I, I'll, I'll, Uh, shine a little light on us for a second like you can go buy a a chest freezer for six seven hundred bucks whatever and put it in your local business you know we we bought a 4-h beef but it could be a beef from your local uh, rancher or whatever but we you know we bought a whole beef this year at the 4-h and we threw it all in the freezer downstairs for the employees to take home at night so I've told them be respectful to each other don't take tons and tons of it or whatever but like if you want to have a nice steak dinner with your wife tonight or your boyfriend or whoever, take home a couple steaks. Take home some burger, cook some burgers like if you want to have a barbecue this weekend, take home some burger and cook burgers so like you know, as businesses you can also help your own employees, you know, eat some good quality beef or pork or chicken or whatever um and and you know, it costs a little bit of money, it costs, you know, a few grand to to do that, but that they can enjoy that you know all throughout the entire year yeah it goes a long way yeah
0: and we do the same thing i mean and it's with, not a
1: huge thing it's not going to change any of these guys' lives throughout but it's the a year.
0: nice like we do the same thing with ranch beef where you know i want our employees to again have that same connection and be proud of what they're doing but it's those little things um you can do like all of those which is hugely supportive right it's hugely supportive of those programs in my opinion give kids an opportunity to to learn to care for things have empathy also like you know, they know the care that it takes to go in there, and then they know where it's going as well. And some people say, "Oh, you raise this thing, and then it's going to go and get slaughtered." To me, and it's like, yeah,
1: yeah. And I was teaching them the 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 supply chain, and and the 4-H programs are really fantastic for you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of people aren't going to grow up on a ranch or have any connection to it. So, uh, it is a way uh, for people who have regular day jobs to help their kids get involved and understand what farmers and ranchers are going through, understand that, you know, your vote does matter and that, that, that tax, that price increase for whatever it is, that's increasing the feed, all that trickles down and it just helps those kids understand. And and, and then the process of life, the, you know, my kids, generally their lives, our lives revolve around our kids pretty much. They're doing sports. They're doing their school stuff. Like our kids are, you know, quite spoiled in that way that they've got everything they need and everything kind of revolves around them and when their next game or practice is. Um, it's, it's the small piece in their life that they have to have some ownership and take responsibility that like, no matter how late you're getting home from your game, you still have to stop at the bar and feed your steers Yep, or your pigs. Um, you know, yeah, you're tired after your football game on Saturday night, but Sunday you got to clean your pens. And you got to provide a clean place for them to live and yep. clean water. We, just this last weekend, my daughter's, you know, had sh- shoulder surgery and her and her sister are out there uh, cleaning out all the waters, getting ready for the new batch of, of, of steers to come in. We're just getting pens cleaned up and ready to go um, while the weather's nice.
0: Yep. It but teaches them care. It teaches them so much. Yep, Hard work. And I tell people all the time, like, you know, I don't know what my kids are going to ultimately do. I don't think any of us do, but I know the skill sets they're learning Coming, you know, out of of you know what what we do at Little Belt Cattle Company, and and know what my business partners' kids like, the skill sets they learn wherever they go, that's going to be added value. Right. And and I think you know again the the connection of of you know of caring for animals, working with animals, they can't if they're in your care. I mean that is a, a huge amount of responsibility, and and you know there's there's right and there's wrong. Um, But I think kids learning that stuff today is is arming them with the skills necessary to be successful adults.
1: Right. Well, we'll end on that. Thanks again for coming over. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was awesome. It was fun.